Hey, all right, this is Tim Crisp, and you're listening to Road to the Skeleton Coast with Brendan Kelly. What's going on, Brendan? How are you? I am okay, trying to stay sane in this uh, world of quarantine right now. Um, but, you know, uh, this is really one of the highlights of my week, Tim. So uh, right now I'm doing terrific. Highlights of your week, highlight of my week, too. Oh, my God, we got so much in common, even if we're so far away. Yeah, what do we have in common? <laughs> we only do one thing a week? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, perfect. You had a busy morning. I got a, I got a notification as I was uh, finishing up getting ready for today's episode. We got a new Bad Sandwich Chronicles over at badsandwich.substack.com. That is true. Yeah, I actually wrote it last night and then I edited it this morning. So nice, um, nice. So yeah, but uh, yeah, it's fun if you're uh, if you're into a little bit of a uh, light reading to take your mind off the uh, end times that we're living through. Check it out. It's a uh, just a fun little thing. It shows up right in your inbox, and you can check it out. Some of it's free, and if you like what you see, you get some uh, bonus materials for a very paltry subscription fee so it's, it's almost nothing almost nothing um but really it's everything that's true in my in my opinion yeah. <laughs> so it's good to see you again brennan i'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us again this week invite you all to subscribe to the show give us a follow on spotify rate us on apple Podcasts. write us a review We've received some nice ones so far, so please keep those coming. Keep telling your friends about the show. Brennan, we've been getting a lot of emails at our email address, address brennankellypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we Perfect. took some questions from y'all last week. We're still hunting down one of those answers, uh, but we'll be answering more of those along the way, so feel free to keep hitting us up over email. I've been getting a lot of messages myself from people we're really enjoying this thing we've got going here. Good. Well, I'm glad because I enjoy it. And uh, I believe that, you know, obviously, I don't know if you call podcasts art, but any sort of uh, performative thing that you do, obviously, there's one aspect of it where you do it for yourself. And there's another where if you were really just doing it for yourself, you'd be like Emily Dickinson. So, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, um, uh, feedback from, from, the, from the basses. That say that we're doing a good job. Feels good. It's nice. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, we're wiping the floor with Emily Dickinson. But, <laughs> I mean, it, it's really nice hearing from so many. You know, the the reason that I hit Brennan up about doing this is the, you know, I've been, had all these questions for so long anyway. So it's really great just hearing from people out there who are kind of uh, enjoying this. And uh, enjoying uh, my little fantasy camp that we've got going here. Plus, Brendan, you've got something down the pipeline, too. That is correct. We have a record. Um, the Lawrence Arms, uh, one of my bands, uh, has a record coming out um, sometime, probably before anybody leaves their house. And uh, that is, you know... Something that at, at least I got something to look forward to. At least you guys have something to look forward to. Very exciting, and um, I think it's a great record. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I can say about it at this point. But uh, I promise you that you will be at least whelmed, if not overwhelmed, with joy when you get it. 
Am I allowed to tell people that I've heard it? You are. All right. Yes. I've heard it. <laughs> no, it's fucking, it's a great record. Um, I've already got a document with questions going, but we're not here to talk about Lawrence Arms this week. That is correct. This week, our topic is the Falcon Unicornography, the first LP. Brendan, it's kind of rare that we find a record from a quote-unquote side project that is just as cherished as anything that comes from the main, but I think Unicornography fits that description, no? Um, yeah, kind of does, man. Um, and, you know, the the whole thing with this was... Um, First of all, it's like obviously just like a labor of love completely. And we didn't necessarily expect anybody to give two shits and, you know, we'll get into it, but it's like the, the record's kind of all over the place. Um, and, uh, it was just really fun to do. I think in no small part, uh, Dan Andriano from the Alkaline Trios contributing star power helped sort of legitimize this as something that would be, um, you know, worth listening to. And, uh, you know, obviously the, with Neil on the drums, he's just an amazing drummer an amazing, um, companion in terms of like song arrangement. And he's also a great guitar player and, you know, all the things kind of fell together, uh, correctly. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and it also doesn't hurt that it came out just right after Oh Calcutta when there was a lot of attention being paid to the Lawrence arms, uh, and so when this came out, I think it kind of got caught in that wave a little bit, which was cool. Yeah, definitely. This is, um, as good a time as any for you in particular to be putting out a record. Um, when we, when we talk about God Don't Make Trash, we'll get a little bit more into the origins of the Falcon, um, and the beginnings of Red Scare, but also, you know, even though this is only a couple of years after that first Falcon EP came out, things are kind of different, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a different lineup. Oh, it's, it's a truncated lineup. We didn't have Todd to, uh, to play guitar, um, anymore. Todd was formerly of Rise Against. He played on Revolutions Per Minute and, um, he was actually the inspiration for the band. We'll talk about that in another episode, but, uh, um, yeah, so that changed. And also I think that the, with the growing of Red Scare into like an actual label and a little bit of the subsequent attention that got paid to the Falcon for not only having members of Rise Against Alpine Trio and Lawrence Arms, but also being the first release on Red Scare, um, there was enough of a spotlight that it became, um, sort of feasible for us to really like focus and like go to a proper studio and, and do this record in a way that would do justice to the songs or at least the project, you know? Definitely. Definitely. And you and Dan, I mean, we, we couldn't just gloss over that part of it. You and Dan, when did you meet? 1994? Uh, I maybe even 93. Um, yeah, 93, because I think Slapstick started in 93. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't know. It was a long time ago. But yeah, I met Dan. I mean, I guess I could do the math the other way. We were both 16. 
Wow. Um, so. Uh, this record comes out right after you turn 30. Yeah, well, check that out. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I've known Dan forever. Um, he's one of the most lovely individuals I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. I've been in two different bands with him, even. Um, so we're talking 2006. So Dan's in this other band, the Alkaline Trio. Uh, yes. I talk about them a lot. Once a week, in fact, on another podcast called As You Were with my friend David Anthony. And David and I have one Alkaline Trio song on hold for discussion with the optimistic hope that maybe sometime in the next 70 weeks before we actually run out of Alkaline Trio songs to talk about, that the three of us will be able to sit down and talk about a song from your favorite Alkaline Trio record, which came out the year before. Yes, true. Um, I don't I don't know how much you want me to give away or not, so I'll just say, yes, I too look forward to that. <laughs> That's the most important part, is that you look forward to seeing me in person again. That is that is correct, yes. But we were, we're talking about Crimson, uh, a record that I didn't personally love too much until I read a Bad Sandwich Chronicles post about it being your favorite. Yeah, I mean, it really is my favorite. Um, I think that it's it really threads the needle of like sort of the um, the sort of classic snottiness that made them, and I don't mean snotty in terms of like sounding like uh, you know lower like, class brats, right? <laughs> or like, or even like something like Screeching Weasel, where it's just like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just mean like sort of just really upstarty, kind of like throwing everything you think you know about this like sort of genre to the wind in in a way that it's obviously it's like. I mean, nobody's fucking splitting atoms over here or anything, but the Alkaline Trio really did come out and it was like, wow, this is refreshing and bold and like doesn't really give a shit about any of its antecedents or anything like that while still like being true to its influences. And I feel like Crimson captures that really well while at the same time incorporating a lot of the more um, sort of like symphonic tendencies that they would lean into a lot. Uh, especially during like sort of the middle of their career. But I feel like at some points um, through their career, they've leaned one way or the other um, to the detriment of whichever side they're leading away from. Mm-hmm. And Crimson, they strike the perfect balance. Um, and so, yes, that, this is my favorite Alkaline Trio record for sure. Yeah, I put that thing on four years after it came out, and I was like, oh, shit, I think he's onto something here. Um, <laughs> there was something you said last week that I think it's it's interesting. To me, I think it's a good place for us to start this week, but you mentioned the Falcon gave you the ability to write songs again after feeling an enormous sense of sort of pressure from what you just made with Oh Calcutta. Yeah. Um, for sure. I mean, the, the idea of writing more Lawrence Arm songs after that was not in my wheelhouse. I mean, we'd, we'd had great tours, you know, we'd started to experience a little bit of success and, uh, you know, with that came like, uh, a lot of growing pains and stuff like that. And also, you know, I was about to have a kid, um, I believe Chris was moving. That might be wrong timeline wise, but 
a lot of things were changing. And, um, oh no, Chris wasn't moving, but we all had things going on in our lives that were, uh, defining and, um, you know, transitional at that point. And so there was no real sense of like the three of us rolling around together all the time, doing our thing. Like we had been doing with Oak Alcutta. We were kind of burned on the tour. And then all of us also, the, I thought the songs on there were just, they came together so well that the idea of trying to top it at that moment, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, like, I don't know how Chris felt about that, but it just wasn't in me. But then the idea of like, like Dan was like coming off a tour cycle and, you know, Neil's obviously in the Lawrence arm. So without, uh, <laughs> if we're not doing anything, uh, if I'm not doing anything, he's not doing anything. Right. And so, um, so this just became like this way to make these goofy ass fucking songs and, and really just have fun with it and sort of like forget about any sort of expectation or any sort of sound. I mean, the Falcon didn't really have a definitive sound. And even now I would say the definitive sound of the Falcon is, uh, a very mixed bag of a lot of very disparate things coming together. Um, in, in a way that creates something in its own small way that's new and unique. But I mean, again, it's not splitting an atom. It's not groundbreaking, but it's definitely not the Lawrence arms or the Alpine trio or to go back rise against or to go forward um, the loved ones or Dave Haas solo, you know, it's a, the Falcons is its own thing. Totally, totally. And I think what you can really see in, in all of these songs is that you're taking them in directions that are sort of, you know, restricted by the Lawrence arms. Not that you can't like do what you want because it's your art, but the Lawrence arms aren't going to have a, well, I guess Chris did throw that ska thing at the end of slowest drink. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think there's just a little more like uh sort of to use like a, phrase of like a 60 year old woman like devil may care attitude um when it came to this stuff it was just like you know it'd be fucking funny if we did this and then and you know we've talked a lot about how like there's a lot of stuff in the lawrence arms that are actually that's actually intentionally funny that sort of gets painted with a serious brush but it's still like really funny to us um in this we were like dude this shit can be funny and we can make it funny you know, like, and, and that, that was really freeing. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I like to joke around with a snifter of brandy here after, after work now and then. So it's like, uh, sort of playing into like the sort of more like humor element of things, uh, was really comforting to me in terms of like finding a footing in a, in a brand new band that was going to get attention and get scrutinized, uh, like right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're also, you're able to, like the Lawrence Arms, those songs are always going to be very like connected to your person. And the Falcon's a little bit more of like your imagination. It gives you a little bit more of a free reign to like maybe write to a particular character or an idea. Yeah, it's it's like there's there's a little bit of that. I mean, obviously when we get to like Wandering Bird stuff, that becomes overtly what's going on where um um in in terms of the falcon 
there's there's a little bit of that, but it's also like the persona that I created. I that sounds so fucking pretentious. That's not what I mean to say. Yeah, um, but the, the person that I am mm-hmm. as the guy in the Lawrence arms is not like 360 degrees of my personality. Right. You know, uh, and um, like that's the outlet for that particular aspect of who I am. There's a lot of me, like, especially on this first Falcon record, a lot of this stuff is me also. It's just like, uh, it's just from a a different side of me. Like, you know, like, uh, you ever see your fucking teacher at the laundromat and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Mr. Rosenbluth, what the fuck? And he's like wearing a t-shirt and you're like, he's got a whole other side to him. I mean, it's not quite that extreme, but, uh, you know, I mean. Like Principal Skinner at the Quickie Mart. Yeah. No, that was the laundromat. Well, he was at the laundromat, too. But first, it was uh, he's in the Quickie Mart, and Millhouse is like, look, it's Principal Skinner, and he's doing normal stuff. <laughs> I believe both. <laughs> yeah. I guess, like, that, that to me seems like, for somebody who really likes to write and write a full page every day Mm -hmm. and really likes to you know utilize writing prompts and stuff like that you are probably sort of i guess does is there a a point where this breaks open into like oh like i can kind of do anything here yeah i mean this was the first experimentation with that and i mean that again it really comes to a head in the wandering bird stuff where i'm like really doing just like literally anything that like Mm -hmm. some of it's so off the rails from anything that I think is expected that, you know, those records throw people for a loop the first time they hear them. But uh, this was stepping into that while still having a foot firmly in the like, man, I'm still playing like, you know, regular fucking Midwestern workaday punk rock, mm-hmm. over, you know, for the most part. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I can't wait till we talk about those Wandering Birds records. What's interesting, I guess, in the in the relation to this this writing that you're doing and thinking about it in terms of following O Calcutta is that you record O Calcutta at the end of 2005 and you record this at the beginning of 2006. Like this, it seems like you conquered a little bit of a, of a block in your writing and then also quickly went into like one of the most prolific periods of your of your career yeah well um i what what do you mean because like because after this record not a lot happened until uh butts went to tears you know Um, yeah but i would say that like 2005 and 2006 you're you're putting together a you're putting together two records and one of them you're doing all the songs on yeah exactly um yeah this was this was a time when and you know, like my another thing that I guess should be pointed out that's I don't believe I neglected to mention till now is my kid got born, and so mm. when I was writing the songs for the Falcon record, there was a certain like uh, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater type situation where like I'd write something and I'd be like, oh, this part is good. I need to keep this because I don't have the time I used to have to sit down and write like seven songs a day and then like be like these are all garbage. And then the next day, these are all garbage. And the next day, Mm -hmm. this one's okay. You know, like this time I had to like sit down and, 
I just had a different sort of level of focus. And I think that might have um, contributed to the more esoteric nature of what's going on in terms of the arrangements is that like maybe I had to try something because I'm like, these lyrics are good. I cannot get rid of them. Uh, why don't I try something very odd? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of these songs take a lot of turns. In, yes. In comparison to to your other material, it's it's good that you literally did not throw your baby out with the bathwater. Um. Yeah. <laughs> the baby doesn't take baths. He's he's twelve now. He only he's bathed like nine times. That's not too bad. I don't, I don't... Anyway, so I, our timelines here. Then you know we've got Oh Calcutta in the fall of two thousand five. You record that, and then you record this record in January February of two thousand and six. Oh Calcutta is released March of two thousand and six. That's a lot of time spent. Uh, you know, doing a lot of minute things, and uh, you're arranging all of these songs. You're adding layers. You're listening to. Uh, drums being uh mixed all of that Mm -hmm. stuff yeah well okay so first of all i guess my timeline is off because my kid wasn't born till 2008 so i am wrong about that um but uh i thought so but that's okay yeah at least i know there yeah no yes (laughs) at least yeah um i don't know the, the memory is really hard to for me to like temporalize i guess but um that happens with my dad too. <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> the um, Good thing this isn't a video podcast. I just had a flash of like, oh shit, I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> but the um the uh the big difference with going into the studio with the Falcon is that um Neil engineered it with Dan assisting him. Mm-hmm. So there was no like, whereas when we did O Calcutta, as we will discuss, we recorded that two-inch tape, which required, like, sort of the steady hand of a master to sort of get through. And, you know, there was assistance in there for Matt, and Neil did a lot of the tracking and assist and assistant tracking, as he always does. For this, it was like, Neil started doing studio work at Atlas, and we just got set loose in there to do it. So it was really like our parents were out of town or something Mm -hmm. just the three of us in there just kind of you know laying stuff down and having a good time and like dan would engineer when neil would be recording and vice versa i guess well then neil would engineer most most of the other times but um and i I believe i mean you've got the you've got the the credits there but we had an assistant in there for that too i want to say it was maybe yates or maybe tinkler maybe both i don't know um, I don't see I don't see any um other assistants. I mean, we've got Matt in there as well. So maybe hmm. Matt's lending a hand when he's available. Yeah. Matt Matt did, Matt did a, li- a little bit. He was he was there, but I mean, he was definitely hands off of it. Like uh, he made it real clear that he he's like this isn't my project, you know. Mm-hmm. Um which good for him. I mean, like who like I I think that he wanted to be sitting there. I just like, obviously Danny and the Alkaline trio have done a lot of great stuff with Matt and we've done a lot of stuff with Matt. And so, yeah, his involvement was sort of, and we're doing it in his studio. So of course he's got a level of involvement, but he didn't take any like ownership of it. And, uh, which, you know, again, for better or for worse, it made us feel like we were like 
you know, cat left the keys to the car and our parents were out of town and we could just party. And it's a new nice car, right? This is the, the coolest yes. Atlas. This is the, the good Atlas and it's heyday. Yeah, this was really fun. It was cool to be in there like that. So there's, um, it's funny that you, that you mentioned, you know, the kind of all hands on deck because we do have Neil playing, uh, most of the leads on here? Mm, no. Neil plays, I want to say, two leads. Oh, okay. Uh, and you can tell which ones they are because they're the good ones. No, he plays <laughs> at least three. He plays at least three. There's um. There's also a lot of acoustic guitars, too, which mm-hmm. um, those are those are credited to you. Are those layers like um, do they have anything to do with the way that you're writing these songs as opposed to Lawrence Arms tracks? Are you kind of sitting and and thinking about like, oh, you know, here's the thing that I can add into this? Part? No, I think I think it was more that like we wanted to have like sort of that like the textural sound of the acoustic guitar to be a, um, to, to disassociate the sound a little bit from like the Lawrence arms and the alkaline trio where like, you know, those bands both have like dealt with acoustic guitars, but, um, never like texturally in a heavy song, you know? And, and that, that just creates, you know, and like, I think it would probably be disingenuous of me not to mention that like against me was really blowing up and doing something that was like very unique at the time. And like that sort of thing was like very much, I mean, I don't think anybody out there would say the Falcon and against me sound alike, but like the fucking, um, the way that they would use the acoustic guitar in sort of heavier situations, it was really cool. And, um, you know, it's sort of part of the zeitgeist at the time, whether they ushered it in or whether that's just sort of what sort of pops something in our heads to, to want to try that. But yeah. Yeah, totally. I love the presence of acoustics on here because, you know, they're percussive. They give a nice bed to things and you get some really pretty, you know, little moments and transitions where you get arpeggios going the acoustics also sound very good on this record you've got like the lead in lazy boy which you managed to get to sound good without having like any scrapings of you know anytime you like make movements on an acoustic guitar string it really picks up in that sort of like sound so yeah well i mean i love that sound yeah i think that's i think that's like one of the coolest parts about playing with an acoustic but you know um I guess a lot of that has to do with how you sort of mic it and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm no, I'm no big city uh, audio engineer, but uh-huh. you know, like yeah, I I think you know we had some nice acoustic guitars to to choose from between mine and uh, Dan's, and so we were we were able to get some really robust tones. Um, I feel like your voice on this record has a little bit more of a rasp to it um is that were you doing anything differently singing wise does that have anything to do with the fact that you just recorded oh calcutta and it's scratching a little bit um i think that like 
Well, what happened was when we did O'Calcutta, that's like when I really learned to really sing. Uh-huh. Um, like I was, there was a lot of like little kind of tricks I would use to sort of be in tune um, and have my voice sound cool up until that point. And then when we did O'Calcutta, just based on the way that like, and a lot of it has to do with Chris's vocals being, um, you know, sung simultaneously to mine a lot. It, gi- it gave me sort of a freedom to really open up and like sing from my diaphragm and really like sort of, uh, sort of exploit the way that my voice breaks up naturally. Mm-hmm. And with this record, I had even more confidence in doing that. So I was able to like really belt it out. And that's not like, I mean, that's the way my voice sounds if I scream. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It's not, it's not like, like where it started out sort of like is maybe like a bit of an affectation, like in the early days of slapstick and stuff like that. It really turns out that that's, it's not that much of an affectation. That's how my voice sounds when I yell. So. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I mean, you we've talked a little bit about about the Goo Goo Dolls, but at first it was, oh, Robbie, I'm going to sing like that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And you and you grow into it a little bit, I guess. Like, how how did you learn to sing then? Like, did you take lessons? Did you talk to people uh, in your in your uh, you know environment who do actually like do vocal exercises and things like that? No, it had a lot to do with just the the way the songs were written on Oak Calcutta. All the experiences I'd had leading up to there were like every. You know, like we've talked about this every time that um, we do a record, like I'm trying to push to do something I haven't really done before just because like that's what makes it interesting and like important to have another chapter. Right. Mm -hmm. And so so I sort of like was slowly, slowly learning how to sing this entire time. And with the Oak Calcutta record, the way the songs are written, the fact, again, that I'm singing with Chris in, you know, in tandem pretty much the whole time. That's that you you sing differently when there's another voice singing alongside you. It's just like sort of like observation theory, but for vocals, mm-hmm. you know, like it just it's just naturally occurring, and um, and it just comes with like sort of the confidence that you gain by trying something and having it work out. You know, like by the end of the Calcutta sessions and by the end of those tours, I was like busting out screaming and like I could hit notes that I'd never been able to hit before. And so when I came in to do the Falcon, I just had that confidence to try to fucking Mm -hmm. lay it down that way. You know, this is something I hadn't thought about until we started talking about it, but you talked about greatest story ever told by the end of that, you were thinking this is the fucking best thing we've ever done. This is so cool. And then when you make Oak Calcutta, you seem to also have like a confidence in, in what you've just done. Obviously with greatest story ever told, you had that confidence like smacked down pretty hard. So like, what do you think about the old Calcutta sessions? Like walking away from that with a lot of confidence that I guess it sounds like you weren't really second guessing it going into the Falcon. No. Well, what happened was when we finished that record and This is not really the time or place for this, but it's. I thought it sucked. Like we, when I was listening to the mixes, I was like, "Oh my god, I've made a terrible mistake." We, I don't believe these are my songs. I don't believe this is my voice. Like, 
I, I hate this. Huh. And then I was disabused of that notion pretty quickly when we started playing the songs live and people started reacting to them. Um, and, and I, and I, I came around rather quickly on that, but it was not like, I mean, in the studio, I had a, you always, or I shouldn't say you always, I always doubt the shit out of myself during like the mixing process. Mm -hmm. And, um, which is not to say I doubt the, the greater project. I mean, like, you know, Neil and Chris, Neil and Dan, Dave, whoever, Nick, uh, whoever I'm working with always bring it. But it's like, I always find that I'm doubting myself at a certain point in the whole fucking process. And, uh, um, yeah. So it, it wasn't so much that when I, when we came into this, I was already confident that Oh, Calcutta had been good, but I'd had to kind of like come around on that. Mm. That's interesting. Every, I'm fighting every impulse inside of me to want to ask to talk about that more. But, <laughs> um, I mean, when you go into making a, a record like this, like, w how, how you talked about the expectations being differently, but like, let's expand on that a, a little bit more because, um, you know, how are we, how are you thinking about like recouping this? If you're, you know, you know that your touring capabilities are going to be limited to the Lawrence Arms, possibly Alkaline Trio, if Dan's going to tour on this. Like, you know, how are you, how are you kind of approaching this? And like, what's the, uh, what's the goal in terms of, uh, you know, selling records and all of that? We, you know, it's like Toby and I had just like sort of, uh, you know, Red Scare was becoming a thing. And I have like a small involvement with Red Scare. Um, and it, this was just sort of like, I can't express enough that it was like, this was just a fun thing that we could do. It's like, oh, me and my two homies could go into Atlas by ourselves and me and my other homie are going to put out the record and that's it. Mm -hmm. Like if it fucking, if it flops, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, and Toby's like, man, it's cool to just have a release with, you know, Lawrence arms and alkaline trio on the sticker like that. That'll be fun. You know? So like it, there was never any question of like, Oh, how do we tour? Oh, how are we going to make this money back? It was more like, holy shit, we got the opportunity to do this. Let's hurry up and do it before fucking the cops show up, you know? Totally. So. Totally. Well, let's get into it. The release on September 26, 2006, recorded at Atlas, the coolest Atlas. That's right. Engineered by Neil Hennessy, produced by Neil with assistance from you and Dan and Matt. I... Yeah, the, the the group effort thing I think really makes this project like mean a lot more. Yeah, I mean it like I know I keep like going back to the metaphor of like a fucking party when your parents are out of town, but that's really like what it was. It was just like there's no one else here. Let's let's do this and then, like everybody could kind of pile on and like come with ideas and sort of I mean that's that has a lot to do with why this record ended up to be such like wacky pastiche or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just, is this was just fun. I mean, beyond anything else, it was fun. Hell yeah. Uh, Andy Gallus helped a lot with the initial mix. Andy Galley has 
tons of credits uh, with R. Kelly, but also uh, people who aren't in prison, like Genuine, uh, Britney Spears, LL Cool J. Uh, Andy was an yeah. Atlas guy, right? No, Andy was not an Atlas guy. Andy, um, he worked at, I believe, Chicago Tracks for a while, and then he, uh, maybe that's not right, but he worked with in-house with R. Kelly. Mm. It was like his big job that he had forever. And he was a buddy of Neil's. I don't know how they know each other, but they, when I met Neil, he was friends with Andy. Like, so they've known each other for a long time. And he's just one of the sweetest, greatest dudes. And he's obviously like a beast behind a mixing board, you know? And um, this is like one of those things where it's just like, oh, fuck, this guy's your friend? Awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah, sure he can, he can do a few things, you know. It's like, uh, it's it's like if you fucking get in a fight in a parking lot outside a bar, and then all of a sudden like your cousin's best friend is Bruce Lee, and you're like, oh man, thank God this guy's here. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, and it's it's helpful too, you know, if you're. Um you're you're wanting to put like acoustic layers on stuff like that like that's uh that involves a little bit of of uh a knowledge on where exactly those should sit in relation to everything else yeah i don't know how much that has to do with andy and how much that has to do with neil and i i I mean i honestly don't know i'm not trying to um like undercut that whole thing at all i just i don't know like i what i don't know about is mixing records really mm-hmm. or like miking things and stuff like that it's it's not ever been something that i'm been terribly good at um understanding i mean i can listen to something and be like eh, this needs more like high mids you know something like that mm-hmm. which i guess puts me above like a you know my mom in terms of like being able to mix a record but you know when it comes to like the level of expertise that those guys have and Danny as well. He's a, he's an audiophile. So when like those three guys and Matt, you, you know, I mean like you're talking about a room full of people that have a lot of opinions and a lot of expertise. And so it's, it's, it's no problem for me to just sit back and enjoy the ride. I love that. Um, I've always loved the cover art for this by headlock Hanora. Uh, what can you tell us about headlock? That's his birth name, right? Uh, well, it's Heather. Oh, um, is her birth name? And uh, freaking, <laughs> I'm assuming genders. <laughs> well, it's all right. Heather is. Um, Heather helped define the Alkaline Trios merch. Oh, that Heather. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, she's a very dear friend. Um, of ours uh was my girlfriend for a while way way back in the day i didn't know that um, yeah was, mm-hmm. uh but uh you know she's a she's a astounding visual artist and uh and she was oh god i i want to see i could be fucking up my timeline again but i want to say that we were on a tour with the trio in Canada, just before this, and this was a kind of when the um, the whole thing was coming together, and that's and she was on that tour, and I believe we started talking about like, you know, me and Dan are going to do this band, are going to do this band again, and you know, would you like to do the artwork? And I might be wrong about that fucking 
timeline, but um, well, you've got a great yeah. track record with timelines. So <laughs> I know, but but yeah, I don't even know when my son's born. Uh, but but uh, but Heather's just been a great friend for a long time, and she does a lot of art for a lot of bands. And we were fortunate enough that we could catch her at a time when she was available to do this. And yeah, I think the cover is awesome. It's super fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very very just in your face. Yeah, it's like it's, it's uh it's a unicorn, it's flowers, it's some sort of bizarre dystopian cityscape or something. <laughs> I don't even know. Um layout by John, where the hell is my nickname Reed? What can you tell us about John? Um he's a buddy of Toby's. He's a buddy of Toby's who uh was helping out a lot when Red Scare was first getting off the ground. Um uh, I've met John, but you know, like it, we've communicated a lot more through emails and stuff like that than face to face. Um, I I believe he used to work at EA Sports. I, I he's a high powered dude, um, but uh, I can't really tell you any more than that. He's he's one of Toby's real dear friends from from Cal, I believe. For sure. Um, cool. So. We've also got a credit that says Todd Money is supposed to be in here somewhere, but we couldn't find him. I uh, also love the picture you have in here of Neil and Dan uh, and yourself. Um, I love that Dan's got this Kirk Heinrich jersey on. Oh, yeah. I um, I really love the idea that that belongs to him. So if you're going to comment, um, please let it only be confirmation that the, that is indeed Dan's jersey. That is indeed Dan's jersey. Yes! God, I feel great about the world. All right, first song, Angry Cry of the Angry Pie. Where did that title come from? Uh, well, my friend Chris sent me a picture. Chris Bach, the guy that drew the original Lawrence Arms Hourglass logo, Flappy. Um, he sent me a picture of a birthday cake and it just said, you want a piece of me <laughs> on it. That was like what the cake said. And I was like, that's so fucking dope. I love it. And then um, I was with Neil in some practice space. And I was playing guitar and he was playing drums. And I just started playing that riff. And I just started screaming, you want a piece of me? Mm-hmm. Because I'd been laughing about that cake. And uh, and that's sort of like how that song got born. But I I just thought the rhyme was funnier than saying the angry cry of the angry cake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, I just love the idea of this like fucking, uh, food stuff, this baked good, like sort of, sort of like, you know, trying to start a fight with you and then you get to eat it, you know? So it's the angry cry of the angry pie. You want a piece of me? I just love that you managed to yell, you want a piece of me and make it sound like, awesome (laughs) yeah i mean this song has definitely got a strange lyrical thing going on and uh i mean i think there's a lot of overblown um i don't want to use the phrase toxic masculinity because it's just like so Mm -hmm. it's just such a like bummer but like it's sort of like making fun of like dick thumping, you know. I mean, like the riff is like a hilarious like 
bar house, like road house kind of like mm-hmm. shit kicking riff. And, you know, like you want a piece of me and like, and the song's like named after a pie. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you know, trying to, you know, mix, mix that, uh, sort of dichotomous thing up yet again. We've got, I mean, the lyrics kind of remind me of psycho killer. There's just like this, a whole lot of pacing going on in a very dark uh and small room yeah um yeah i mean this this is definitely like a song that sort of like is representative of fury and madness and also like misplaced um energy right or displaced energy Mm -hmm. right uh you know like and like yeah, and it's like got like a kind of a psychotic thing to it, doesn't it? Like with the the sort of like the the sort of like rapid fire weird like way it rhymes and like repeats in very bizarre ways. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's supposed to be unhinged for sure. I love yeah, that that line of the show keeps running after the audience has all go home, gone home. It's like, "Oh yeah, all right. I'm I'm with you." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, you know, a, a big thr- big thing spread throughout this record is, you know, the moments like we have in the chorus where you have like a number of backing vocals that chime in. A couple of them are in falsetto. There's some low down tracks in some of these songs. Um, you know, I know that there are moments where Dan's obviously backing you, but this one, it sounds like these are all you just going into different ranges. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I believe. I mean, the falsetto stuff is me. I, Neil might be doing a little. Those guys might be doing falsettos on there as well, but I think the one that I hear the most is me. But that could just be because it's my ears, for sure. I remember, I remember putting down those those falsetto vocals um, and kind of being like, "I'm going to try something real stupid here," <laughs> you know. And then, and then, yeah. uh, and then those guys, you know, sort of being on board with it, and that was pretty cool. It feels like you're you've got a lot of freedom with your voice on this record. It's is that that's a combination, I would say, of of both the freedom of just the project in general. And do you think like having the work that you've done with um, you know, actually singing like from the right spots, is that absolutely is that helping you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like Yeah, all of a sudden like, you know, to be like sort of like uh set loose with the fucking car keys, to use that metaphor again, and then like to have like a better command of like the instrument that is my voice. Um, it really led to like making some interesting decisions. Some of them weird, some of them good, some of them probably a little cringy, but you know, what you going to do? <laughs> the, uh, the bridge, God, the motherfucking motherfucking hero. Yeah. You, you're just giggling when you're writing that, aren't you? Well, that was one of the things that in that initial jam session, it had the whole song pretty much laid out. And then we broke into that. And that was the exact lyrics that I just sang off the top of my head right there. Like the uh-huh. first time we ever jammed this song. Um, and that, that sort of informed the rest of the lyrics as I went back to it. You know, it's like, how do I connect? You want a piece of me? with did you know you're my motherfucking motherfucking hero because i want both of these lines in the song i think that they're you know i I almost never ever go at writing a song like this like you could count on one hand the amount of songs 
that I've come to through a jam session or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But this one, this one, I mean, it's an unusual song and that's probably why, because we came at it very weird, but yeah, I really love that bridge part. I think it's so funny. And I mean, I think that like the vocal delivery is like laugh out loud, hilarious. Like, um, that like I was trying to sing like uh, Dean is Dean the singer of Ween or is it Gene? I think it's yeah. Cream. <laughs> but when it's like the wind beneath my wings is burnt and stale, <laughs> like that's like supposed to totally be like a Ween kind of thing, you know and. Uh, and like all the little like, wow, you know, like all that shit was just like, uh-huh. that was Weedus. Well, <laughs> no, no, it was not Weedus. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but it, it was just like, you know, it's like, if we're going to go here, let's go all the way here. Yeah. You know, and so that's, that's how it turned out for, for better or worse. So are you are you thinking consciously then of like the because uh, I always love that line in Spinal Tap of there being a fine line between something that's brilliant and stupid like you you do something really, really funny here. That's also like so fucking melodious that it works and it, it just it's a it's a very good package altogether. But, you know, if you get too too heavy into making everything like totally goofy it's going to kind of fall apart, right? Totally, man. Um, and I think that the, um, you know, it's just like a matter of like trusting your bullshit detector a little bit. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a room with two at any given point when I'm making any record, I'm sitting in a room with at least two people that I respect the shit out of who I think that if I was doing something really dumb, they'd be like, yeah, I don't know about that because like, that's, mm-hmm. that's the kind of like, the way that we all sort of have to operate. Right. And it's like, we're all good old enough friends. And I think that, I think that we all know that anything like that doesn't mean like, I don't think you're good at this. It's just like, I think that what you think you're trying to do here is not coming off the way you think it's coming off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And like, and that's a, that's a valid piece of criticism that like, you know, I think is the (laughs) Also, if you're in a band, that's the way you should phrase that shit, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, because <laughs> it's, it's a lot better than, like, that sucks. Because <laughs> that'll just... But, but you know, like, I, I feel like we've got a pretty good sense of when, when shit's veering into not working. I mean, you know, again, it comes from doing so many things that didn't work and looking back and really sort of learning from past mistakes and stuff like that. So, like... The whole thing with this, the reason that that's such a memorable part on this record is because it does like really like sort of scrape the atmosphere with whether or not this is going to work or not. But, you know, it Mm -hmm. wouldn't but it wouldn't be able to if the rest of the song wasn't so like fucking grimy. Totally. You know, and Mm -hmm. so it's like it's like you can all like you fall back into that fucking dirty riff and it's like, oh, that was that was great. Is there anything else that's like helping you? Cause y- you talk about like doing things that you knew were funny for the Lawrence arms that like weren't 
coming off as funny because of just the nature of the project. Was there anything that you were doing to help kind of channel like the humor, the humorous side of yourself and put it into a song that's like going to make logical sense for anybody who's listening to get where you're coming from? Um, man, you know, the thing is like your band is never going to be good if you don't have a sense of humor. Right. And that doesn't mean that you have to be funny at all. Mm -hmm. What it means is you have to have a sense of humor. We've talked about this before. I believe we talked about it on the first one. Definitely. First episode of this. But like, I think I even said this too, like humanity and humor come from the same Latin root. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's like, so when something is really miserable, you know, they, the, what is the equation is comedy equals tragedy plus time, you know? And, um, like humor is naturally birthed in a despondent mind. Right. And, uh, and I think (laughs) that, that, like if I'm doing anything to help myself be funny, it's just getting depressed. (laughs) That's probably the best way I can put it. (laughs) Well then, no. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to make you talk to me about that one then. Like what, what what are you, so what are you depressed about? No, I mean, just like, well, I mean, isn't there just like a, general sense of like white guy malaise that you have to have at a certain point <laughs> i don't know man no like, uh, no I, not I, at all this is I, my I, this is my fourth podcast that i've started i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> i you know i think that there's just like a you know like coming to grips with being like in my 30s at the time all of a sudden and mm-hmm. wonder wondering you know like what would you've what have i done with my life feeling like my Youth is over. My most productive time is behind me. Uh, you know, I'm fucking married. I'm about to have a child. I don't really have much of a job. Um, it, you know, does my, uh, you know, does do my friends like me? Everybody's like moving on, doing things like whether it's like being in a huge band or uh, you know, getting a real job or whatever. And all of a sudden, it's just like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't know. Yeah. You know. Um, and I don't think it's like the kind of depression that would, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like there's something, I'm no big city psychoanalyst, but, uh, or a big city engineer. That's true. Or a big city attorney. That's <laughs> also true. But I feel like, I feel like there's something fucking ghoulish about never having depressed episodes right um, yeah it, it doesn't seem natural and normal to me i think you know um in a sort of a balanced mind or i don't want to say that that sounds like judgy or whatever but like if you're if your mind i is, don't think there's anybody who's listening to this who isn't of the state of mind that you're talking yeah, no, about you I know understand. yeah sure but we're all connected to like a yeah, you got you get the blues sometimes, right? And 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 that that is like sort of if your brain is working right, it's like you get that for every time you are like super happy or whatever. It's like you kind of mm-hmm. got to swing swing the pendulum, right? And I've been fortunate enough that like my pendulum swings pretty normally, 
So it's like, I don't want to like sit here and talk about like depression. Like I've got firsthand experience with like clinical depression or anything like that. I'm just talking about, um, sort of ennui and malaise and like the sort of regular workday depression that comes with aging and wondering about my place in the universe. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that the, um, transition into your thirties is a, a period of time that, um, that everybody kind of like when they go through it, they understand that it's, it's a very like weighted time. I don't think that it gets talked about a lot, but I mean, I remember all of the things that I did on my 29th year to have so that when I turned 30, I felt like I had things going that I was like doing a thing at least that there was something that was planting me and like, this is what my life is like about. Right. It's like aimlessness. Aimlessness is like not, it feels like when you're when you're going into your 30s you can't have the same set of aimless the same like set of just yeah that you had when you were 27 yeah totally and i'll tell you what man uh and for all of you out there turning 40 way better than turning 30 um it's awesome Mm. i mean i guess if you're doing it in quarantine it might suck but uh you know chin up (laughs) we'll get out of here someday but yeah, um, I'm with I, I'm I'm loving my 30s personally. I am feeling so relaxed most of the time. Yeah, can't wait till yeah. 40. That's what a 40s 40s great, man. Um, blackout. We got uh, we got another profile of a real delinquent type in this yeah. song. Yeah, I mean this this is just like a fucking. This is the party song, man. It's about like this is like your classic like Clash, Rancid. Um, not that it maybe sounds like those bands, but like the idea of like singing a song about the music that you love, mm-hmm. you know. And this is done through like a sort of like double vision um, at the end of like trying to like scrape yourself out of the. Um, dirty puddle the greasy puddle outside the fucking bar yeah and like climb into a car and just like blast the song on the way home you know that's that's like sort of i mean it's it's just really that simple but um yeah this one i think turned out really fun um i, I it's it's a great like late night driving home song from the perspective of someone who shouldn't be driving but yes very very much so <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it, you do like sketch out the character a little bit. It seems like there's, there's something that's causing this person to get into the state that they're in of just blacking out. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, this is definitely a song about substance abuse as well. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's not, let's not like, you know, mince words. It's, it's definitely about getting super fucked up, but, uh, it's sort of like a more happy um, sort of take on that than sometimes I think I go with. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this this one's just, you know, and it's also about, like, sort of being indignant at um, the shitty music in the place where you are and then just, like, 
get into your car and blast in the good stuff also yeah you know i think that you're in a you're in a pretty good uh period where you you are making some good uses of of the devil you got him uh keeping time first on the pedal then on the brake pad or maybe it's the other way around but you know the devil calls you by your name if you're gonna put the devil in if you're gonna refer to the devil directly he's got to be doing something cool that's right, man. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it's also just like sort of like the demon swimming in you, right? And like, it's like, yeah, man, it's the, uh, I didn't want to drive home, but look, hey, man, it's the devil. <laughs> the devil's the one with the fucking foot on the gas, yo. <laughs> I, 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 I got nothing to do with it. He's just in me. Um, do the I like the acoustics on this one a lot. They have like a a swagger to them. It it feels like a ska rhythm but i don't want to i don't want to pigeonhole it no it's, i mean this this was definitely supposed to have like a, a like a nod to to ska for sure um i mean it's um like i said you know the the sort of inspiration of this is like sort of clash rancid singing songs about the songs you love kind of thing mm-hmm. and you know bob marley does that too with like hit me with music and all that kind of stuff you know it's um it's just like a tradition that i think calls for like a little bit of upstroking you know (laughs) when so when we talk for better yet right before i turned 30 um you mentioned when it when it came to slapstick that you weren't like huge into ska so i i feel like rancid and and the clash are really good you know utilizers of ska but they don't you know they don't necessarily uh, they're not as dorky. Claim Scott. Mm-hmm. <laughs> claim yeah. Scott. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, I, it, there's, there's a lot of ska that's not that cool, but there's a lot of music that's really cool that happens to have ska elements in it. And I mean, you know, like, I mean, I think something like, uh like desmond decker is awesome you know like sort of like that really old stuff is cool but i mean when it comes to like more modern stuff it's like if i don't know man if like somebody that was in operation ivy's not involved i don't know for (laughs) sure for sure like down with everybody because i think like wearing wearing the ska badge is is a a great like admission of like this is what i'm what I'm into, it's kind of dorky. As a as a fan of pro wrestling, I can like vibe with that mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I love all of that old like tough gong shit. Uh, the yeah, harder they come soundtrack. Oh, it's amazing. Shitty movie though. I watched it again the other night. It's just not good. Um. Oh, you went like this when I said that. Well, I just think it's crazy that that. I mean. And I'd love to be corrected about this because, like, I can't imagine that this is really true. But isn't that scene where he records the song Harder They Come in the library, him actually recording that song, and, like, it's about how that song becomes famous, and that's the actual recording of the song that becomes famous? I believe so. That makes that movie fucking amazing. <laughs> that, like, like, it doesn't matter what the fuck else is going on, because that is, like, one of the most incredible biggest ball sack moves i've ever fucking seen in my life it's like because i i mean 
I, listen, again, I'd love to be corrected on this because I can't imagine that's true, but that's what I've always heard, and that's to me, that's astounding. It is. And it's also like one of the greatest vocal performances of all time, and if that's like really the footage of it, which it really looks like it is, um, then... Again, the rest of the movie could just be like a dude farting onto a white bread, and it would be an amazing movie just for that it, sequence alone. It kind of is, um, but I think <laughs> I, I don't know if it's I don't know if this is like maybe maybe I'm adding parts together that aren't really there. But I know that that soundtrack was supposed to be all Jimmy Cliff, and he only had like four or five songs, so that's why they filled it in with like you know, Toots and Maytals and stuff like that. Um, maybe that's why they, maybe that's why they recorded that studio session because they were like, dude, we need a, you need to record this fucking song for this movie that you're starring in. <laughs> um, Chris, the people's champ, McGoggin on the guitar solo. What, what, what prompted the people's champ as the nickname there? We were doing a tour with no use for a name, um, is European tour. And so we were on, we shared a bus and the, there was a, in the upstairs lounge was a, I don't know, a PlayStation, I guess, of some iteration. And there's just like this one FIFA game and we would all play it constantly. And like, I sucked at it. Some people were pretty good, but. Chris is really, he doesn't fuck with video games. I don't think he has a console, but he's like, just got it, man. He is a good video game player, man. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to call him a gamer because he's not a gamer. Like, but like, he's just, you know, it's like you see your friend, like hit a fucking three pointer like every time you're like, yeah, do you play basketball? I was like, nah, I don't really give a shit about basketball. <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But so he was, uh, we, we, we decided to have a big tournament and the two like people that were like really coming out as the, the leaders, you know, the, the top seeds were, uh, Chris and the tour manager, Mike Leonard, um, and who, <laughs> is wonderful. I love him to pieces. He would be the first person to say he's a total fucking asshole. Like on purpose, it's part of like his character. And uh-huh. he, he, you know, like you say something, he'll be like, is that supposed to be fucking funny? You know, yeah. like that, that, that kind of dude. Uh-huh. Right. And he, he's terrific. I mean, he's also like funny and warm and engaging and great, but like, he's got this persona of like being kind of a curmudgeonly asshole. And it's, First of all, it's great for a tour manager. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's perfect for the job. And um, second of all, when it comes to a tournament with a bunch of very bored men on a uh, on a fucking double decker bus uh, <laughs> cruising through Europe, it makes for like the perfect turn to heal, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, so and and because Chris was the other person that was. Um, you know, the only person that could be competitive with Mike Leonard uh, in this game, um, and a natural baby face. Yes, and, but he, but you know, Mike Leonard started referring to himself as the champ, uh-huh. and <laughs> so we all started referring to Chris as the people's champ. And as this, like, as this tournament built and built and built, um, terrifically, 
uh, the, <laughs> the, the, what was on the line in the championship was that the loser had to wear this very tiny, uh, jersey, <laughs> like a little tank top uh-huh. all day during like a show day. And, uh, well, Chris won and Mike Leonard is like six, five, probably, <laughs> you know, 250 pounds. And he just comes out in this tank top and we're like, yo, and he's like, shut the fuck up. You know, just like not <laughs> having any sort of, it was terrific. Chris is the people's champ and truly the champ. Although I, I believe there's a rematch and Mike wiped the floor with Chris. And he maintains the status of champ, and I think that's, you know, that's the way sports is, man. Oh yeah, just like just like life, just like all of it. I love that story. I love that Chris is like secretly great at video games. I am terrible at video games, and that's why I don't like them. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. <laughs> uh, lazy boy, five hundred. It's uh, it's nice that we had that outcome the wolves primer last week. We just talked a little bit about rancid and the clash because this song, mm-hmm. I I know that they're not the same chords, but they it always reminds me of Roots Radical. Yeah, I mean, well, this song definitely has that kind of vibe to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I mean, and sort of in a way, I feel like it's a parody um, of that sort of style because. And and also like very much in the vein of like those Outcome the Wolves songs. This, you know, the, there's like they got such a romantic thing going on as they're like taking the bus and here's some Puerto Rican girls oh and they're God. playing a pinball machine yeah. and all this stuff. And this one's just like, yeah, I'm walking down the street, nothing really <laughs> going on. And here's some people fucking watching TV inside. That's all, you know. And like that, I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, and then yeah to take the bus the bus back to my apartment (laughs) yeah right it's just like damn you know walking down the road yeah not fucking off (laughs) like everybody else around here actually by the way like you know like i don't think you're really doing that much benzonato uh (laughs) but uh (laughs) but like you know that's sort of what the chorus is about too it's just like it's really not that interesting. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know? totally. Like, and I mean, obviously it's a, there's a little more joy in it and there's a little, uh, blasphemy tossed in there for good measure mm-hmm. with, uh, making fun of Jesus, but he's cool. He, he gets it, you know? Yeah, totally. I bet you that if we called up Tim Armstrong right now, he could tell us exactly what the story is behind Jimmy Cliff's recording of The Harder They Come. Like, to the fucking, like, most minute detail. That guy, that guy knows. Yeah, I bet he does, yeah. Um, yeah. We, we've got another music I'd video. Love to, I'd, love to hear, I'd love to hear him explain it. Oh, yes. Yeah, just like... You have to get- Film him you like his translator. Oh, my name is Tim. I'm a lesser known character. <laughs> um, we got another music video to talk about from oh, yeah. director Clarence Darrow. 
That's right. Yeah. What do you know? Um, if any of y'all are watching this on YouTube, I'd recommend muting it and skipping to eight seconds ahead and then starting the track on your own player because the video has that like low quality MP3 like shimmer high frequency thing that kind of hits you. Um, but at least the only one that I could find. But uh, this looks like you were just having a whole lot of fun with you and your buddy Danny. Yeah, Dan came over. He uh, came to my house, and I had a video camera. He had, I believe Dan edited this. I think maybe Nick edited this. No, it had to have been Dan. It was Dan. He did it in, like, uh, whatever, the iMovie or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And we just, yeah, we were just dicking around trying to, trying to have as much fun as we could and just like you know toby's like we need a video uh and we were like uh like i don't know where neil was at the time but (laughs) (laughs) he's not in the video (laughs) and if he was in town i mean we would have called him so i don't understand i think it was this was a pretty i it might surprise you to learn this pretty like seat of our pants just kind of fucking around in one afternoon sort of thing i find that so hard to believe because the seat of your pants for half of this video is on the floor while you're sitting on the turlet <laughs> yeah exactly no no it's, it's reg- regrettable cursed image but what are you gonna do so so did dan film while you sat on the on the can and just yeah, mouthed yeah. out the lyrics yeah, like, of the song yeah we 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 filmed each other doing this that's why we're I don't believe in it together at all. There's the one spot where the, you're uh, sitting at the table. Camera's probably just oh, there yeah. on the table. Yeah. Um, you guys film anything else that day? Uh, mm. I, I like the the one part, like, sort of towards the end where um, it looks like you are, in fact, like, wiping your ass while you're talking. And then you just kind of <laughs> go back to putting your hands all over that magazine. <laughs> well, uh, I was not actually defecating uh, during the filming of that video. Uh, I find I think that would be gross. In fact, oh yeah, you got to draw the line. I, I actually think I'm actually surprised that I even like went there with that because I don't really like that kind of like scatological humor. And I'm not being sarcastic. Like mm-hmm. things like actually about poo, not for me. Um, and I. It really does surprise me that like we went there with this. I think we were just like, I think what we were playing into was the fact that this video is going to be pretty half-assed, and mm-hmm. like, what's more half-assed than just like, uh, you know what? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on the toilet, whatever. Do you remember the magazine you were reading? I was trying to get some analysis going. I was watching it like the mm-hmm. Zapruder film. Nah, man, I don't remember what it was. Um, I'd hope it was some sort of skin magazine, but I can't remember. <laughs> oh, did you did you at least buy that guy a sandwich, the Birdman? No, you don't get too close to the Birdman <laughs> because then you become the Birdman, and uh, that, that is the last thing that you want to become. Uh, it's kind of like the Giver. Yeah, right. Um, so was that? Were you filming at your place then? Where was that? Mm-hmm. Where was that? Uh, it's like 
in Lincoln 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 Square near um uh right near Lawrence and Western. Mm-hmm. Was that guy out there all the time? Yeah, yeah, he was um he was there a lot. He wasn't like a daily fixture, but he was definitely a part of the neighborhood. Like there was no point where it was like, holy shit, look at that guy covered in birds. It was like, oh, it's the bird man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, um, it, it, we've actually had more than one question on your shirt in that video, the who farted shirt. Where'd you get yeah. that? Uh, do you still have it? Uh, I got it strange cargo. Um, I had it made. Um, cause I had another one that was black with white and I lost it in Japan. Um, so I got the green one made and, um, it's, first of all, I think it's a funny shirt. It's got a little tip of the hat to my man, Curtis Armstrong, who our band is almost kind of named after in a weird way. Uh, <laughs> Booger from Revenge of the Nerds, mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know. Um, also, uh, what's his name in, uh, in Better Off Dead, Charles DeMay, is that right? Uh, it's pretty close, if that's not correct. Oh, I don't know. Um, He's in Risky Business, right? I think so. Uh. Bronson Pinchot is in Risky Business, isn't he? Young Bronson Pinchot? Perhaps. Um, But, yeah, so he wears that shirt in Revenge of the Nerds, but there's also this amazing horse race clip of this horse named Hoof Hearted. (laughs) (laughs) And it is... I, I just Google hoof-hearted horse race and it is the funniest fucking thing it like i, I was like, crying but it, it because it's like he's like eh, coming on the outside it's hoof-hearted oh yeah he's taking you know he's coming up on princess magdalena and it's hoof-hearted on the outside <laughs> oh my god coming down the stretch hoof-hearted 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's a real fucking broadcast and it's amazing and the idea that somebody would spend like whatever three hundred thousand dollars on like a fucking prize winning uh you know paint thoroughbred or whatever to fucking, just to name it that to get this guy to scream who farted is unbelievable to me. <laughs> that's that's my kind of shit right there we were watching an old episode of unsolved mysteries the other night which all of them are available on youtube for free to watch uh highly recommended and there was a guy on there named dr john d butts junior who was talking and i was like oh my god your dad mr john d farts (laughs) said john let's name him john d farts junior md (laughs) oh man um so this song it's it's pretty on the nose for 2006 and uh more on the nose than uh 2020 i have to say all of the shit that you're talking about here it's like very on point yeah i mean you know i think nihilism never goes out of style right like that's a uh, sort of the, mm-hmm. the most for sort of pithy way i can put that but yeah i mean there's nothing new under the fucking sun and uh yeah this one 
I, I don't know. This this was one where I was I wondered if the chorus was too obvious. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, did it? I kind of felt like it was a little bit backwards. Like it should be dying is a lot like living. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like I already know what living's like. So they say dying is like this, but then I kind of had to transpose it for the rhyme, and you know, it also just like flows so much better. And I sort of came to an understanding of like a justification in my head of why that would work. Um, you know, which is essentially they say this is a lot like what it's like to be dead, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, I was able to talk myself out of 86 ing it for some sort of like artistic puzzle. I couldn't quite get my head around. I had to like change the rules, but that's fine. So, you you mentioned um you know making a making a little joke on Jesus here. Can you can you tell me like what the motivation was for that line in particular? Um well, you know, it's just like I, this is this is like I said like a fucking bit of a nihilistic song and like the idea of having faith is antithetical to that right like uh the like they're 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 the opposite of each other and Mm -hmm. you you, um if you are going to truly embrace nihilism in a world of decay and uh where everything perishes the stupidest fucking thing you can see is somebody being like well you know we'll get our we'll get ours in heaven yeah. It's like, eh, I don't know, man. <laughs> if there's anybody up there, they don't give a shit about us. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they, I don't I don't know why you think it's gonna change once you're like living in their house. Uh <laughs> if anything, it's gonna be worse, <laughs> man. You ever hear a job? <laughs> um there is though there I've been thinking about this John Mulaney joke where he's talking about, you know, how, how goofy like religion is and uh, being raised Catholic, but anytime he hears Bill Maher say, "How could you believe in someone up in the sky?" He's like, "My mommy does." Yeah, right, well, I you... think there's a good like Catholic boy in me that's like, like I hear that and I'm like, eh. just think about my grandma and feel a little bad, even though I know that's not what you're trying to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I was raised Catholic and confirmed. I've seen midnight mass with the Pope. Uh, my mom, wow. my grandfather would go to church like twice a day. Mm-hmm. Um, like I come from a pretty religious upbringing. So fuck all that stuff, man. I I don't care about your fucking grandma, man. I, it's like, I got my own problems. Like I, I'm not, I never like fucking go up to an old lady and be like, you're an idiot. I never go up to anyone and like besmirch their faith. But at the same time, like. I got to fucking, I got to do me when it comes to that. And it's like, it's, it's been too much of a part of my life to not, to just ignore. And especially if we're talking about things like dying, where that's like something that's like on, that's on the docket. You're talking about dying. You're going to have to grapple with faith and or afterlife or lack thereof. Right. And also, man, my man, Satan's in this fucking record all the time. You gotta, you gotta give. That's true both sides you know i'm like the new york times (laughs) um 
Yeah, no, it's 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 totally true. Um, it's you know, it's like one of those weird things that sort of like burrows in you, where I'm like, you know, I don't I don't know if uh, I don't know what my like reaction is actually like moved by. I haven't been to church in ten years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you know, we're not talking about things in terms of like a protest or um you know people boycotting your band or anything but were you were you at all worried about like how that might come off to some people no nah, man cuz here's the thing it's like i'm not even really in the in these lyrics i'm not even really questioning the existence of a god or even like sort of negating the idea of a earthborn savior slash avatar of god uh all i'm saying is if there's a god he doesn't give a fuck about you mm-hmm. um, and that is evidenced all over the fucking place man it, i just wrote about it in the bad sandwich today you know where it's like the god hates poor people and he's proved it every single day ever since the beginning of time you know? yeah <laughs> right yeah so, so like uh that's that's all I'm saying, man. It's like uh, I think Patty Costello said it one time, um, and it mirrored my sort of feelings and things I've said. But I think he said it better than I've ever said it, which was, "If there is a god, he's a bully and a dick." Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, I think you know I, I I appreciate you you sitting for for that one because you know I'm not trying to grill you or anything, but it is something that I think is on my mind and probably others. Um, it's interesting, I guess, in the context of like, this came out right around the time that I was getting into the hold steady, and like, Catholicism is so big in that one. So it was like, this guy comes in with uh, like, you know, this big insertion of like, Jesus in these songs, and I'm like, finding myself like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about Jesus more than I'm used to. I'm not going to church, but I'm thinking about it. And then there's this one, and it's like, I think it's good. It's a good balance. It's a good thing to have. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like I said, I could probably some psychiatrist could probably retire talking to me about religion. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, suffice it to say, it's it's been a, it's been a part of my life, and. uh kind of work its way into the songs a little bit here and there yeah totally uh i love that you hold off on the last one where you you hit that high note with your jesus ain't gonna save you i'm not even gonna try to do it but that's like that's the fucking best part of the song oh yeah that's uh that's that's just high man yeah was that a tough one to reach Mm, not really that those high those high chords uh in my throat tend to be in pretty good shape. I don't know. I haven't sung like that in so long. I wonder if I'm even going to be able to sing when this is all over. I haven't really thought about that. Weird. Hey, hey, right here. We can do this forever. Yeah. Right? Right? That's right. That's right. He takes a long and pregnant pause, thinking of a life spent recording podcasts with Tim once a week for the rest (laughs) of eternity. Goddamn right. Uh... Celebutard Chronicles. Does this replace Maury for you? Or were you always kind of fascinated with this whole world? No, yeah, I mean, like, 
you know, this is like obviously comes from a place of disgust, but um, there is something to be said for like the fascination with sort of like like what is the what is the unique tier of celebrity that gets like embroiled in these like star magazine articles and scandals and all this shit. It's like uh, it's not like the most famous people. You know, it's not like the most interesting people like it's fucking Nicole Richie. Right. Like the daughter of Lionel Richie and the friend of Paris Hilton, who is married to a guy from Good Charlotte. And it's like, is it just that? Because she's got like a celebrity network that like everybody gives a shit. And like who it's it's like a it's like a false currency where like. Nobody gives a shit about Nicole Richie until people start like putting uh, these articles together, and then all of a sudden they create this demand for Nicole Richie out of nothing at all, you know? Or it, it it's just it's strange. I mean, I like we understand that like there's people that are like like Paris Hilton. She's like a beautiful socialite, right? Whatever. But there's more beautiful people that are richer than Paris Hilton. I, why did she <laughs> all of a sudden? She's got good PR, I think. I guess, but what's that PR? It's like, it's like, oh man, they're gonna catch you wiping your fucking ass with a Ralph's bag out behind the Viper Room. You know, like, and you, you, P- you looked like you were wiping your ass in a music video, and nobody paid attention. I know, I know. I mean, I'm definitely no uh, Paris Hilton, but what you know, but the but the idea, of, like, it's just kind of fascinating to me whole little cottage industry exists and it's it's really kind of disgusting and like uh you know i find like the sort of like the world of the paparazzi to be like pretty terrifying and scary mm-hmm. uh and also just gross um but a lot of these people kind of like bring it upon themselves i mean like you see like the britney spears meltdown when you know at first she was like very much friends with all these people and then they like like some sort of like magical slugs or something they like sucked her vitality out and replaced it with poison until she's like shaving her head and chasing people with golf clubs and shit you know Mm -hmm. and it's like it's a very bizarre and fascinating sort of story um and you know, on one hand, it's, like, fucking really harmless because, it's like, these people, like, you don't see Johnny Depp really in the tabloids. And he's, like, a guy that, you know, has, like, domestic abuse allegations against him. Is mm-hmm. in a fucking wacky rock and roll band that seems like they just, like, live on fucking amphetamines all day long. You know, like, and yet he still manages to not be in the public eye in the same way that, like, a... uh I don't even know who the, these people are anymore, but at this time it was like definitely that like sort of like brat girl pack or whatever, you know, definitely. Um, and, and, and like, so it's like on one hand, like are the paparazzi ghouls? I think so. On the other hand, is it like a symbiotic relationship? I also think so. And on the other hand, it's just like a bunch of people like vacuously reading shit, like before they go to bed or like in pools or like on a Sunday, like if you are, 
um, looking for a gift for your the mother of your children on Mother's Day, um, just buy her a bunch of shitty celebrity magazines and put them on the bed and be like, you can just lay here until you read all these. And she will love you forever. That's like pretty much the best gift you can give uh, <laughs> most, you know, sort of moms. They, they love that shit. And it's like on that, on that end, it's harmless. I, I don't know, man. The whole thing is weird. And that's sort of what this song is about. It's, I mean, it's, it's performed with a little more disdain than curiosity, but mm-hmm. it's fucking punk rock, man. You know, what are you going to do? Totally. I think that um, it's it's sort of an interesting that development that like maybe I'm a little bit naive, but I feel like in the mid 2000s, it sort of became a thing that went from like grocery store, checkout line, tabloids, and then also became a TV thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was like the internet, you know, like obviously like something like Perez Hilton, mm-hmm. which became like this cultural force for some fucking reason that I still don't understand. Um, and I mean, I guess it's all part of the same thing, but I don't know where like this one, like unlikable asshole drawing dicks on people's faces became like the sort of standard bearer of that whole thing. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, it happened, you know and I mean? Like, I suppose there's like a very like dad, like pragmatism. That's like, well, we're reaping what we sow, you know, like here we are trapped in quarantine because, you know, fucking 15 years ago, yeah, we all we did was worship this unlikable dude who drew dicks on people's faces and these dumb, like coked up uh, women that were wiping their ass with trash bags, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> more, I think it's just fucking weird, <laughs> you know. Like I'm, I'm not trying to scold the universe. I just like, what the fuck? Crazy. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a thing that's been hanging over us for a long time it's definitely a thickness that's in the air um, well our president is the direct result of that i mean like yeah I, I don't wanna, fucking, like, mm-hmm. get in, i don't want to get into it too much but like but i'm i'm not i'm not wrong man like, yeah that's, that's, totally. we're we're here because of that you know um and and i don't know what got us to there i mean there's obviously it's like the whole thing's like a jacob's ladder right where you're always at the beginning and you're always at the end. Mm-hmm. But um, eh, that was a time when it was really cresting in terms of the, its public facing. Yeah, definitely. I think that like you use Ashley Simpson like by name in, in this song and that's, that's a pretty good representative for someone who is in the new track of like they're famous and the reason why has nothing really to do with them. It's just that she's there and her sister has a TV show. So might as well. Right. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's odd. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't besmirch any of these people for like doing whatever it is that they do. And it's not like, because, like, one thing I hate is when people are like, Kim Kardashian's famous for nothing. It's like, Kim Kardashian's a fucking very clever businesswoman. And she's, like, mm-hmm. makes apps that appeal to 
people like little girls and, you know, like housewives and stuff like that. It's like just because you find it to be vacuous or vapid doesn't mean that it actually is. It just means that it's not something that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. But don't mistake that for being something that's like a total waste of time. It's like if people enjoy it, it's something. I mean, she's like a businesswoman, right? And, uh, And I don't care about... Like, the fact that Ashley Simpson, like, just did, like, one sort of, like, half-assed record and then, like, was married to Pete Wentz or whatever the fuck the thing is. What I'm curious about is why... Why the... Why they... Why she, in particular, got caught in this storm. You know? Like, I don't... It's, it's almost like there's, like, no rhyme or reason to it. And it's, like, these people that are, like, marginal celebrities become huge celebrities... Because of their willingness to play ball with these paparazzi or whatever, I don't. It's it's odd. It's just an odd thing. Yeah, it's it's strange. I can't remember when her like SNL thing was. If it was before or after this, but um, yeah, it was like there were, there are a couple martyrs in the in the whole story. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if anybody really came out alive. To be honest, I mean, yeah, it, it's either Kim. Going, yeah, yeah, but she's like a little bit on the on the new. She's on the new front, I think. It's like Paris and, and Nicole, they all had to go to rehab or or they mm-hmm. were just going to, you know, spend the rest of their days talking about, like, the one thing that they really fucked up doing. Right. Uh, Lindsay. Oh. oh, yeah. I love her. I watch Mean Girls once a year. It's one of the best <laughs> movies of the best 20 years, in my opinion. You know what's funny about Mean Girls is... um. That Tim Meadows deserves better than what we give him. Well, I don't. I don't know Sorry. about that. I, what I was going to say is that the Lawrence Arms went on this like very long European tour, and we left before they'd ever announced the movie Mean Girls. It had its theater theatrical run. It ended, and by the time we got home, it was gone. So people would be like, yeah, you know, it's like Mean Girls. And I'm like, what the fuck is Mean Girls? They're like, you know Mean Girls, the movie with Lindsay Lohan? I'm like, I don't know who that is either. Whoa. And, you know, and, and like, and Tina Fey, I'm like, I kind of know who that is. But that was like, they're kind of star making turns or whatever. And that movie, and it just, because of where I was, mm-hmm. totally missed it. Completely, 100% missed it. <laughs> Like, wild that's so wild yeah yeah <laughs> it's funny now because if you don't go on the internet for half a day you probably miss something and it's oh, gone yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah this took like nine weeks or something but um i love the end of this though like i want to see my name in lights um because i i feel like that that does like hit at something where it's like this thing that's like so gross and disgusting but i think it's a very human uh desire to not desire but fantasy to be like see how do i what am i like if i'm there right Right? no totally and like i mean like this this is like obviously a told from the perspective of somebody that's maybe a little bit disgusted, but also very curious. And like, even in the chorus, like enabling, uh, you know, this sort of behavior. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and like, 
it I don't know this this uh this is this is a weird one. I I like I just like the dirty like vibe of this song. Like it's like I feel like it's like got like a real like heartbeat to it, and that like mm-hmm. that riff is so like uh, it's dark, you know. And it's like I mean for a song that's about something kind of like vapid and lighthearted, it's got like a real like dark undertone to it, which I kind of like. It's kind of the opposite of Lazy Boy in that way. Yeah. I I always love the line, baby, don't you want to throw it up now? Because it's like, <laughs> it's so gross, but it's like so tender in its mm-hmm. own weird, like, disgusting way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely talking someone into having a better morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think what it is is that... Uh, I know we've been on this topic for a while. I think it's the fact that that shit is just so easy to consume. And it's it felt like in the mid-2000s, it just started becoming a thing that was on TV more. And it's the easiness of it that you can just fall into. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, people talk more and more now. And I mean, it's like, you know, that you've optimized entertainment for the internet where everything is like is it a 45 second video or is it an article I can read in two minutes, you know? And, mm-hmm. and like, or is it just like scrolling through Twitter? Uh, but like, you know, people talk so much about like, this show is great because I can turn it on and I can walk away and come back and I don't care what I missed, you know? And I think this might've been sort of the start of that, which is really like kind of pioneering in entertainment. Right. And, uh, unfortunate for anyone who's trying to make something that, uh, requires things. Like a long form two hour podcast about an obscure uh, <laughs> batch of records. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're out but, there though. We mm-hmm. we love you. Um, Little Triggers is the fifth song on Elvis Costello and the Attractions this year's model. Oh, is that a coincidence? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, and I'm not joking. Yeah. I'm not a real Elvis Costello fan. I wrote this song initially when I was dicking around with the uh, melody. Originally, I had it be Little Fingers. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a Apocalypse Hoboken song. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about like Trigger Fingers, so I just changed it to Triggers. It was still like mm-hmm. the same thought I was having, but I just wanted to change it. I didn't know there was an Elvis Costello song called Little Triggers until much later. What's interesting about this song is that it is pretty much chord for chord, all the way through, arrangement and everything, 18 in Life by Skid Row. I stole the entire song, completely, 100%, the entire thing, every chord, every change. (laughs) Wow. Now, I'm not... I'm not super familiar with the work of Skid Row. I uh, I believe they had it behind the music that I watched. If not, I've definitely seen Sebastian Bach talking on fucking, you know, the 100 greatest moments in hard rock on VH1 at some point. Um, Holy shit. I had a dream last night that Sebastian Bach was back and he was like beautiful again. That's so weird. He- Just... <laughs> Hey, anyway, go on. Sorry. 
We'll wait. We got we got dreams coming up later in this record, but uh, I love that one. Um, fuck. <laughs> so I I don't know that song. Is is that like Skid Row's like Every Rose Has Its Thorn? Was that a radio song? It was a huge radio song. Um, they had three songs that were hits. Uh, first was Youth Gone Wild. Second was 18 in Life. And the third was I Remember You. I Remember You was the, I would say like the Every Rose Has Its Thorn in terms of like it was the, the undoubtedly, there was a ballad. Mm-hmm. Um, remember- if I was going to point to a song that was like 18 in Life, the song I would point to would be Unforgiven by Metallica. Okay. Where it's slow, but you wouldn't call it a ballad. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was slow enough that like, you know, it could get like a little more appeal than say like Sad But True or in the case of Skid Row, Youth Gone Wild. But it it still was like a dirty song. It wasn't like, it wasn't like an acoustic, uh, everyone has a thorn more than words kind of song. You know. Do you remember that commercial that used to be on TV like all the time in the 90s for it was like a two disc set monster ballads? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I think I remember you would be on monster ballads, but 18 in life maybe could be too. It had a it's a pretty interesting song. I, you know what? It sounds a lot like Little Traders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by Elvis Costello. That song. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So did uh, did uh, did you knowingly take it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. You like you'd have to really listen to them side by side. It's it's not like oh wow. Turns out it's like oh this is hundred percent stolen. That's so funny. Um, you. This is one that I've been looking forward to talking about because uh, this is one of the achievements of this song is to really like cool down a little bit you had four rippers preceding it you need something that like brings the uh the tempo and the tone down a little bit if you're making a full-length record which you are but you're used to making full-length records with chris being there Mm -hmm. who's always you know it's it's like that that change is sort of ingrained when you're sharing the songwriting duties right sure sure so i guess um you know how how was it being in the position where you are thinking about all right i got to i got to fill this album out and i need songs like this to anchor it uh well for one thing i don't know that i feel like this song really fits that category so much i mean because this song's pretty fucking it gets pretty heavy um i mean it's it's really i guess it is a little bit slower than Lazy Boy 500, but I mean that's not exactly a fast song either. You know, it's just like there's there's a uh, there's like a muscleiness to this one that um, I think sort of transcends uh, tempo, right? But like, no, I I don't think I consciously tried to do anything but challenge myself with various like exercises. And in this case, the exercise was take Skid Row's 18 in life and make a different <laughs> song out of it. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. That's fine. So I guess, um, does 18 in life, uh, have the, uh, the lyrical content that we're working with here? Or was that just like, 
No, no, no. They the the lyrics and the melodies are different in a lot of places. There's only like one place where I do the exact same thing when I say it's all going down right as it goes into the guitar solo. Mm-hmm. That is the same thing as when he says a child blew a child away. It's the same. Oh. Oh, it was a song about a child blowing a child away. Yeah. Yeah. Got to have away. one of those. Um Got to have that away in there. What's this what's this song about? What inspired this? Other than Skid Row. This is this is another uh I think that this song was just about sort of like the flaccid state of what I felt like was an insurgent uh, artistic medium in terms of like the scene at large. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just whereas lazy boy trades in sort of nihilism and apathy in a sort of like revelry, this one sort of could be said to be looking down its nose at that very same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like the, um, the whole, like, remember the hippies, that's us these days thing is just like, remember the ineffectual, stupid fucking hippies. (laughs) Yeah. Here we are not doing the exact same things. Right. You know, like, um, and I mean, beyond that it's just like it's it's sort of more of the same i mean these songs are very much thematically similar just like the idea of just like trudging through your life and losing sight of what um might be important for the sake of just like getting through the day without having to think about anything too hard you know Mm -hmm. um i think i think that might be a pretty good summation of what i feel like this song is about yeah totally we uh we let Bush get elected again. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> the routes we wander. Uh, what's what inspired this one? We've um, got another one coming up that also takes place at sea. Where is it? Where is uh, this one coming from? Um. Well, this, so this was this was one that was re-recorded from uh, the God Don't Make No Trash EP. Oh, I'm, this. I don't know how I. Yeah, whoops. Uh, it's got a. It's got a different name. Okay. On, but I. Because on the EP, it's got two names. Oh yeah. Every every song on the EP has two names. The Roots We Wander is one. Ah. Uh, okay. My friend, my friend Tut Beamer pointed that out, but I thought he was talking about the uh, asshole parade. So my mistake there. Also, but they're, they're both, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and uh, weirdly, those aren't my two favorite songs on that EP. Uh, but those are the ones that Toby, I think, was like, "You should re-record these just so people get a proper dose of them." Um, this this song is about just. I mean the the real quick summary is this song is about being hungover as shit. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like, and sort of fighting that off with little hair of the dog, man. That's you know, you come to life again. 
you know, like we'd say that all the time, like sit there and just be so hungover and just like, you know, you get your, your fourth or fifth beer and then you go, Oh, I'm coming to life. All right. Yeah. I'm coming to life again. You know? And that's like, that's sort of the, the colloquial, um, sort of inception mm-hmm. of this song in terms of words, you know, like this, that's, that's a, colloquialism in my circle of friends if you're like i'm coming to life that means i've had enough to drink that i don't feel like dying anymore (laughs) you know and i feel like this uh i feel like this song that's it's just painting a picture of that really more than anything um i was gonna ask if uh swallow hard was a fellatio thing (laughs) no no man (laughs) um I, i mean this is one of the songs on this record where it it does feel like you're getting into a little bit of like a character study. Yeah, I mean, this one is. Um, I feel like it's like I don't want to compare myself to anybody that's actually good at anything, but like you know, when you read like some of those young adult books and by young adults i don't mean like being 14 i mean like being like 23 like your bukowskis and Mm -hmm. fucking fontes and stuff like that where it's just like when you read it and it feels like there's only like one person in the world you know what i mean like it's like it's like i wouldn't you know then you know charlie went into this bar and then he wandered out of the bar and it's like you it just gets Mm -hmm. this like super like telephotoed worldview right Mm -hmm. um and this was my attempt to do sort of something like that and i mean like a lot of it comes from a place of uh experience i suppose but like maybe not as rapid fire as this implies do you know what i mean if like you compile a decade of drinking into a day it becomes this. Oh you know? yeah, sure, sure. But like, it's like it's not like it's it's. But um, yeah, I, but yeah. I, I feel what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah, where it's just these these guys who just that's all they do, and right, right. somehow they manage to be heroic in their own like weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely no um, sort of uplifting resolution to this song right i mean like the end is about how he can't sleep so let's drink yeah <laughs> Come to life again you know like it's it it's like there there's a there, it's it's very pragmatic in terms of like you know you drink too much you can't sleep well you can't sleep well you wake up and you feel like dying so you drink more feel good enough to get to the point where you can't sleep well mm-hmm. you know that's sort of what it's about. And um, some of the like more interesting like nuances in this song, there's a lot of like weird riffs on the acoustic guitar that I think are pretty funny. Yeah. And they're supposed to sort of sound like staggery, like uh, formalistically, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they swing and, a little bit and come back up. And then, and then um, the... The no means no, like woofs that we do in this song. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's something. 
that the Lawrence Arms employed a little bit on O'Calcutta as like part of like the tribute to like our favorite bands. Mm-hmm. And then coming off of that, I was like, there's not enough woofs on that fucking record for me. We're going to fucking do it on this shit. So that's like that, that part that's like, who, 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 yeah, who, you know, like that's, that's all some no means no shit. Um, yeah, I like, I like thinking about this one in, in, uh, comparison to jumping the shark where it's like that one jumping the shark is you 100%. And this one comes from you, but you've sort of put it into a a framework that's, you know, a little bit more, more fantasy. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. And again, it's like the sort of, the notion of this one was to sort of like dabble in like sort of those literary, uh, influences, I guess, like Fontes and Bukowski's and stuff like that, which I mean, obviously it's not like the most highbrow of shit, but like, I think that that stuff gets a bad rap because the people that love it are idiots, you know, sure, like, yeah. uh, like, um, <laughs> there's nothing that's worse than like a good piece of art being ruined by somebody that's terrible liking it. Yeah. Right? And, I For mean, sure. And, and like, and I'm not talking about like, Dude, I oh, love the I, Grateful Dead. Like I, oh well, yeah, mm. for sure. Okay, so ooh, that's a go. tough one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, so I'm been, not fucking cool, down Tim. with with Deadheads. Nah, but, but no, no, I, I, you know. I get you, man. And like, and I'm I'm not one to. I hate shitting on something that other people genuinely like, and I hate shitting on people and saying that they're not allowed to like something. Like, the idea of, like, calling someone a poser to me is kind of gross. Because um, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, what, their enthusiasm for something new that they don't totally understand? That bothers you? Like, what What? What are you fucking... Uh, you're, what are you, Sid Vicious's son? That you're so cool that you're, like, born into punk rock? Like, give me a fucking break. Uh, but at the same time... I feel like there's a lot of uh, willful misinterpretation of certain things. Uh, I point again to Bukowski and Fonte as like, that's so awesome. They're just like fucking wasted, you know, like, and it's just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's the point of that, but um, I find, I find those books to be incredible and like, And you know what? It's actually not the people that enjoy them that bother me. Now that I'm like actually finally considering this out loud, which I never have done, it's like the fart sniffers that outgrow it because of those people that bother me. It's like, oh yeah, no, I used to read that, you know, back then, but I outgrew it, and it's like, Uh fuck you. Like, what do you, what do you fucking read now? Then what you, you fucking like? The Rosetta Stone, you know, <laughs> like, like you fucking. Read, I only read hieroglyphics fucking, now, you know. Yeah, the walls, the walls of Tuttenhamen's tomb. Uh. Yeah, give me a fucking break, <laughs> asshole. You know, it's like, <laughs> and and I, I take it all back. I apologize to all the fucking frat boys that think of Bukowski as a good reason to get drunk on a Tuesday. That's 
absolutely with that art is for. I was wrong. I rescind my comments. It's your fucking dipshit uh, classmates that I fucking hate who fucking deride the work and you for liking that stuff that I have take issue with. But anyway, yeah. Beautiful. Look at this podcast. We we could do this for the rest of our lives, and we're we're just gonna we're gonna do nothing but grow. Yeah, I mean, we've what, what, what have we got like six weeks. It's cool. <laughs> um, so I guess with that, uh, the longshoreman's layman. It sounds like lament, lament, whatever. Yes, the longshoreman's lament. This is very much the same thing. This is mm-hmm. very much in that like sort of like pulpy new grown-up fiction category there is a there's a joke um and the joke is thus a guy becomes a new sailor on a on a ship and he's like they're like you know all right show pete around and he's like and you know the uh first mate's like okay well here you go Mondays are great. Everything's loaded up. We just take off and, uh, you know, we, we pretty much sit around. And then about five o'clock, we all go down, stick our dicks in the barrel. And uh, <laughs> you believe me, you're going to love that. It's awesome. Right. And he's like, OK, cool. What about Tuesdays? He's like, Tuesdays, um, it's a little harder. You know, we got to unload the boxes, get get stuff ready. Um, some people have kitchen duty, whatever, but then at five o'clock you go down, you stick your dick in the barrel. <laughs> it's awesome. What about Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday is pretty good. You know, um, we're, we're pretty much at that point. We're like doing the rigging, any sort of like, sort of, uh, you know, maintenance on the sails. If you can darn, you get to darn, but one way or the other at five o'clock, you go down and stick your dick in the barrel. <laughs> and it's awesome. What about Thursday? Oh, Thursday's your day in the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> and Friday, I'm in love. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, <laughs> so, um, this song is based on that joke. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but, like, but you draw the line at, at poop. No poop. No fart jokes. <laughs> oh, yeah, poop. Nah, farts are fine, but poop is gross. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, um, I felt like that... I feel like there's so much more to that joke than just, like, the idea of, like, having to sit in a barrel and suck dicks. There's, like, a fucking darkness to it. There's a universe that's created there. There's, like, a mentality that's, like, really, like, disassociative and it, it's like I find it to be like this profound sort of universe building in a very small period of time where like uh, you can like dehumanize yourself and dehumanize other people and like create this crazy sort of um, maritime reality that doesn't necessarily exist on a shore or whatever and and then like pragmatically and matter-of-factly discuss it as though it's an order of business mm. while at the same time disassociating yourself from your own reality. Um, and I just found it to be really like ripe for uh, sort of exploring and exploiting. And I mean, 
I recognized it. I'm talking about like a dick sucking joke as though it's like some sort of like treatise on something, but that was just what occurred to me. And so this, this is the song that came out of it, I guess. Yeah, no, that's like, I I like that a lot. You're, you're going to be in the barrel one day during the week. Just, uh, try and (laughs) try and enjoy when you're on the other side of it. Yeah, right. You're going to love Monday through Wednesday. That's that's all I can tell you. <laughs> uh, Unicorn Odyssey. I, I I feel like the whole the heart of the record is is right here. There's some um, there's some uh there's some really deep feelings happening on this song. Is there, are are we talking about real people here? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um and this is a weird one, man, because this is this one is like maybe like escaped the orbit of this record to be like as popular as any like Lawrence Arm song I have. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's really like people yell this at Lawrence Arm shows, huh? You know, like semi regularly, and like um, when I wrote this song. I took it to Todd, who was still a, a present member of the Falcon. Uh-huh. He he is still a member of the Falcon, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, I don't know where he is. But um, uh, and I showed it to him, and I was like, I wrote this song. But I think it's too stupid. Uh-huh. I'm like, I think that the the chorus is just these little woes. And he listened to it, and he goes. Dude, you ever hear the fucking song Baker Street? The chorus is <laughs> He's like, if that could be the chorus, this can be the chorus. This song's cool. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I don't, I don't want to hear anything more about this. And I was like, okay. And so it was like with a little trepidation that I brought this to everyone and like put it on the record. But because Todd was like sort of my like canary in the coal mine for this one. Um, and it's so weird. This like always show things to people, you know, mm-hmm. before, like if you feel like there's something there, cause I felt like there was something here and I very easily could have just not ever showed this to anyone. But it turns out it's just like one of like the more enduringly popular songs I've ever written. Who knows? Who knows, man? Yeah. Um, take that. Less than a heart for sure. You mentioned uh, you mentioned to Lauren Denizio from Warriors not too long ago in an interview for the Alternative that a lot of people ask you to play it and you're kind of not sure why. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the short answer is people like the song, um, I, and it's really easy to sing along with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, this one's weird. I got like, I got like a weird feeling even talking about it. It's like, uh, this is like, uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like, uh, like I put so much out there and so much of it that I'm like, this is gold. And people are like, nah, I don't really give a shit about that. And then this one, like, was really unsure of and then people come back with such like effusive 
love for it, and it's just like, oh man, fuck, this is kind of why we do this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why we do this. It's great. This is one that's just yeah. like it, it feels like it's so beamed down. Feels like it. It just did you write it, and it just kind of like happened. Uh, that's the way I do them all, though. Yeah, I mean, I never spend more than like. 10 minutes on a song it's just like it's it's got to come fast or it shouldn't mm-hmm. or i don't i don't believe in it um the it's funny you say that though because it's like <laughs> the first line of this song is so like awkward and weird and like it like to to have it uh described as something that's beamed down it's like <laughs> <laughs> the beam got fucked up <laughs> somewhere along the way. <laughs> I don't know. I I think that. Well, firstly, I remember having a conversation with. Um, this is a little little testy person to bring up because of. Uh, I don't know, but Ian Graham from Cheap Girls and I had a conversation a few years back, and. Uh, cheap girls have a song called her and cigarettes it's a minute and 45 seconds long everybody loves it requests it he had a very weird relationship with it because he just kind of wrote it in 10 minutes and he's like i worked so much harder on these other ones i don't know why it's that one but right but it clicks and it clicks something inside of inside of people um Right. Well, I don't feel that way about this song. I'm uh, I'm pretty proud of the way this song turned out, and I don't think it's like a throwaway song by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, kind of the title track of the record, right? Mm-hmm. But I just, I just remember my trepidation at showing it to anyone because I thought it was maybe too stupid. And I guess what I should have trusted is that the verse lyrics are so involved that the chorus doesn't really need to be anything, Mm -hmm. you know? And then, you know, it kind of comes with a hard outro. That's like a bit of a tearjerker or whatever, but it's not too heavy handed though. No, well, thanks. I, I, that's, you know, I mean, this song is like treading dangerously close to, sappy nostalgia sort of levels but um i guess it does turn dark <laughs> so that's, that's nice yeah i i mean i the the reason i like that like last line so much is that everything is so detailed and it's getting harder and harder these days is just like the most like blanket statement that you could yeah. that you could throw onto it but it's so lived in Sure, sure. Well, I appreciate that. I think, yeah, you know, this was one that like almost turned out, um, despite my best efforts to fuck with it. (laughs) There's like, you know, like I, but I, but I didn't, I really didn't fuck with it is is, I guess the thing. And that's, that was sort of where I sort of slipped Mm -hmm. fucking ass over neck into having, having this song because like. I could have like gone back and tried to make a chorus or I could have like tried to make two lines for the fucking end, you know, or something right, like that. Right. But instead I was like, nah, it's done. It's like this. Here it is. And thank God Todd was there to fucking talk me off the ledge and 
I mean, I I really like playing this song is really uh fucking enjoyable and uh yeah, I'm I'm stoked on it. I'm I'm glad people like it. I'm glad I didn't throw it away. Yeah. I don't know why it just like you know, I've I've known this song for fucking 14 years and I haven't ever really considered the fact that I used to sell hot dogs. <laughs> it just dawned on me because I I was thinking like, you know, there's that that first line. It's it's goofy, right? But I feel like there's there's something very particular in there that people I people understand like the the sentiment to uh the position that this person is in selling hot dogs. And I'm not even again, I'm not like talking about myself as a hot dog vendor at a Home Depot in Crystal Lake, Illinois. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I, another thing too, is that I, for some reason, always thought about, I always thought that this was a one person, even though it's obviously not cause you can't see someone for the first time twice. Um, yeah. but there is like a connectedness to them, not to all three of these people, not just because they're in the song together. It's like, they're all in, you know, these weird sorts of phases of their lives right exactly and all people that i knew intensely for a moment and then vanished you know Mm -hmm. um like sort of a uh stock taking of living an intense sort of series of moments with someone and then and then being like Oh, uh, oh, you're you're gone. It's pretty weird that <laughs> we we shared this like very like intimate, intense part of both of our lives, uh, and I, I will I ever see you again? I have no idea. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, sorry, thinking about uh, thinking about a unicorn. Oh yeah, hot dogs too. I don't know. I have a um fuck it. This is a uh anniversary of I lost uh I lost a friend a few years back. Um just like perfectly fits within any of these uh verses, any of these characters. Um and uh you know that you know that the the type of random people that you just you see you see you see them getting onto a bus and uh mm-hmm. and they end up waiting for the next one so that they can talk to you for a little bit yeah um sorry bud you want to <sighs> cut it for a sec no it's good yeah i'm enjoying spending this time with you I have to say, All this right. is the weirdest thing that's that's like ever happened. Um, but it's nice to have these uh, these sessions of ours. Great. Well, then, then we're doing the right thing. You have to produce for the people out there, but you have to produce for the people in the room too. There's, even if it's two different rooms. Yeah. There's there's <laughs> part of me that wants to know a little bit more about um, about. These folks, I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know if that takes the magic away. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. They're like, it's, I, I could just like, 
sum it up to say that these are uh these are these are kind of characters in my life that I felt very strongly about in a positive way and then they all kind of vanished for various reasons and it it would it would do no it it does it's all like, kind of there I don't, have, I don't have much to add beyond what's in the song to yeah be honest, yeah you know yeah so so I, yeah I, I i i like their their ghost forms um i do have a a request for uh information on the hillbilly bar um all i can tell you about that is that the i don't remember where it was necessarily but the salient thing about the hillbilly bar was that the bar stools all looked like tree trunks <laughs> which was <laughs> dope as hell and uh like it, like it was like it was like if you took a log flume thing and you turned it on its end that was like what all the bar stools looked like and uh beautiful <clears throat> and i seem to recall that it was like pictures of pbr or whatever the local equivalent was um for like a dollar so yeah so there's a reason that the only thing i remember is the bar stool <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh this is yeah this song's magic baby um rl burnouts inc uh what's the where the title of this one come from i was watching a documentary on pbs about um, sort of the Delta Blues, I guess, and it sort of started focusing on Arl Burnside. Mm. And Arl Burnside is very old. He's dead now. Um, musician from, I want to say he's in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong about that. I'm wrong about almost everything, but no, only important dates in your life. Yeah, that's right. But he uh, he had this song. It just showed him. And I think this turned out to be a thing about Fat Possum Records and how it's like, thank God for young white hipsters coming down here and oh, exposing the world Christ. to ancient black people. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, God, I don't believe you sucked me into this whole fucking thing to make this like a fucking... It's the fucking know, worst. self filating yeah. documentary. But anyway... The, I guess the thing is that they brought awareness of R.L. Burnside to PBS, who in turn brought it to me, in which case... Thank you, Fat are, Possum. <laughs> yeah, they are doing the Lord's work, man. And I got nothing against that stuff. It's like, you're trying to like genuinely get good exposure for people. That's fine. I just... Uh, I suppose my my problem is not with Fat Possum. It's more with the idea of doing a documentary that has to shoehorn that in without it being about the artists yeah. you know what i mean mm-hmm. like uh but i don't know i haven't seen it in so long i feel like i'm talking shit about something i don't know enough about to talk shit about so i i rescind all my fucking controversial statements but anyway he fucking played this song on that documentary it was like when they first introduce him and you've been like watching some of these like great old blues men and women play and all of a sudden it gets to him and it's just like the energy is he's so old and he's so like 
just decrepit and even compared to these other people and he starts singing and it's like oh fuck this mm. is the dude right and um first line of the song he sings is i'll slit your throat from ear to ear and i'll drink your blood like wine i'm not afraid of living and i'm not afraid to die and i was like that is my shit right there hell yeah you know and so that's that was sort of the impetus for this song and it have you ever seen the movie ghost world yes steve buscemi and thor uh-huh. birch mm-hmm. um scarlett johansson mm-hmm. <laughs> i like how i leave her to third like she's not <laughs> more famous than the movie and the other two <laughs> co-stars combined uh <laughs> hey 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 buscemi always at the top of but, the bill except in fargo for, yeah well, um <laughs> uh the, so in that movie Buscemi plays this guy that's like really into like classic classic blues like on 78s and stuff like that uh-huh. and um and he goes and like he's trying to date this woman and she's like have you ever seen blues hammer they're really awesome authentic blues and he like goes to this bar and it's like a guy that's supposed to be Arl Burnside uh like a thin caricature of him uh-huh. uh, supposed to be opening so he goes to see this guy and then Blues Hammer plays. And it's like a bunch of like fucking shitty white kids just like, <laughs> you know, and he's like, what the fuck? And everybody's like dancing. Nobody cares about the guy that he's there to see. So with that in mind, this song was supposed to kind of sound like white guy blues a little bit without the... Without the hammer on, um, da, 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 mm-hmm. that's that that's never going to be good. Uh, but, For sure, yeah. But the idea was to subvert the notion of white guy blues, and it's like if I could make a song that follows all these tropes, and it's not bad, then it'll be good. You know, I think. Yeah. That that was that was the that was the exercise in writing this song. I it's love like, can that. I start out with an RL. Burnside lyric, stick within a blues structure and come away from it not looking like some dipshit, like Michael Keaton, Jim Belushi, (laughs) white blues man, (laughs) motherfucker. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I bet you Jim Belushi loves B.B. King. Stevie Ray. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, fuck Led Zeppelin. Um the uh the second verse uh we you got uh I've waited for that man. Is that a Velvet Underground reference? I know that that's like a colloquialism, but is that a yeah, VU? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a Velvet Underground reference there. Um which I feel like the notion there was the Velvet Underground bought us so much from black music and like turned like the transformed or created sort of New York white hipsterdom um, through like sort of the casual and I think tasteful exploitation of black artists, um, <laughs> you know, from like uh-huh. the fucking like the doo-wop shit on totally on Wildside 
and, and shit like that. Which they also stole the phrase walk on the wild side from, uh, uh, God damn it, I want to say Langdon Alger. Simpsons! Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, Nelson Algren, um, who's a Chicago writer. He wrote The Man with the Golden Arm. And he's the guy that created the phrase monkey on my back. Um, he's the guy that created the phrase take a walk on the wild side. And he hated the Velvet Underground. And he was underappreciated in his own time. But um, Nelson Algren, he is uh, worth checking out if you guys want to read some good Chicago pulp. Um, he's awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, Man with the Golden and, Arm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the uh, and so I thought that the idea of exploiting Lou Reed, exploiting black culture as I exploit black culture was kind of a funny, uh, like, I don't know what that's called when the snake eats its own tail. Uh, the, uh, I can never remember it either. Damn. What are you going to do? Um, I know I didn't I didn't have you pegged for a Velvet Underground fan. I'm not a big Velvet Underground fan. I just know enough to be fucking a snarky dick, <laughs> very esoteric songwriting circles. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. Nobody's, nobody's gonna sit there and be like, "Oh, look at look at the shit he's talking." And it wasn't supposed to be talking shit. I think the Velvet Underground is cool. I just thought that you know it all made me think of each other. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or I think of me like the Fat Possum documentary, me stealing this, trying to make something out of this that's cool. Velvet Underground does the same thing. You know, it's just like all kind of comes together. And then when I'm like, oh, that's a Nelson Algren line. Fuck it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'll take it back. Yeah, it's all it's all taken from someone. Uh, David really got me into the Velvet Underground. He's a big fan. Uh, so building the even more perfect asshole parade, last song on the EP. Why, uh, why re-record this one? This was Toby's favorite on the EP and, uh, he wanted it to be recorded better, which, um, I think probably a good move. I mean, this, this song's got a real kind of bounce to it. So, um, Totally. And, and you know, I was, again, you know, you talk about this being a very prolific time in my songwriting. Wasn't so prolific I had enough songs for a full length, so <laughs> it's all right to fucking re-record a song or two here and there. <laughs> it's always at this point of the record where I, I, I look back and I'm like, is there a woe or an ooh part in every single song on this record? Uh, yeah. I think probably, um, maybe, maybe not, maybe more in like a lead vocal kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, like in something like little triggers, there's not like a backing vocal. Whoa. But there is at the end. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Whoa. You know, stuff like that. I think the woes, you know, <laughs> fucking no effects did that song called Whoa on the woes. And uh, do you know the song I'm talking about? No, I'm not a huge no effects guy. Uh, well, they did a song called Woe on the Woes. And 
I'm so easily influenced by stuff like this. Like, I think I've mentioned this before. Like, my friend Pete once told me to change the channel because he didn't want to watch stand-up comedy. He's like, I hate stand-up comedy. I was like, oh, yeah, me too. Change the channel. <laughs> and it, like, killed my love for stand-up comedy for, like, 20 years. I was so embarrassed that I liked it that, like, I mean, probably the reason I'm not a stand-up comedian today I could trace directly to that moment in my life when Pete was like, I hate stand-up comedy, change the channel. Because I was so, I was like, oh, it's not cool? I thought it was cool. Oh, no? Okay. <laughs> and and uh, very similarly, when No Effects came out with that Woe on the Woes song, I was like, oh, yeah, Woes are for dorks. That's right. I knew that all the time. Yeah, Woes are for nerds. Like, I'm just so easily influenced by other people's, like, strong points of view uh-huh. that I... I mean, it took me forever to be like, it was when we did Oh Calcutta, I was like, you know what? Let's put woes in this fucking thing. You know? And like, and that was like a real eye-opening thing for me because I'd been taught by like somebody that I consider to be a mentor, even though it was just in a song and he was just joking around Mm -hmm. in the song, that woes were lame. Totally. Robbed the world of many of my woes for a long time, but came back with a vengeance on this record. <laughs> so there's plenty of woes, man. You know, make it up for lost time. I think it's a good thing you didn't become a stand-up comic. I think that requires way too much dedication to being very, very annoying. <laughs> I guess maybe that's true. <laughs> <laughs> this was just like, this is so fun and... I think that you you hit really well on like the that second term bush like fuck this is getting worse. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh Yeah, this one this one is like pretty hopeful at the very end though, but I mean it's hopeful in a fucking dark way. Mm-hmm. Um the Yeah, I mean like this this one is like sort of uh symptomatic of the whole thing, right? I mean it's like you're talking about fucking billboards, salaciousness, um, you know, sort of siloing your beliefs um, by only getting the information that you, that's like pre um, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like pasteurized for your own yeah, yeah. tastes, you know? And, and, um, and then at the end, it's like, yeah, man, just fucking slap a little makeup on this bitch and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, every, everything's cool. There's nothing under the makeup. Yeah. All your problems will be gone. <laughs> you know? And, uh, yeah, so I guess the song is really actually very dark, but I feel like it has the illusion of hope. Yeah, it definitely does. It's it's finding uh, finding what what's good for you what's working for you um all right when i give the signal run 10th track uh seems like we're we got like a roadside prison labor situation going on yeah man absolutely very much inspired by sort of some of the far shots of um cool hand luke yes I was hoping you were um, going to say that. Um, yeah, this one is... 
I mean, the metaphor is obvious. Like, we're all chained together. They're telling us what to do. Fucking, we got, we cannot run unless we all run together. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, it's, it's not like uh, the most profound uh, discovery in terms of a punk rock metaphor, but. To be honest, I'm surprised it's not used more because <laughs> it's it's just so on the nose. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Maybe I'm the only person dumb and lazy enough to actually employ it. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, this that's that's exactly what the what the sort of imagery in the song is supposed to evoke, for sure. Uh, there's a line that the overalls are down, but the sheep line up too fast. Um, <laughs> okay. So I'm not, I'm not like crazy. No, no, man. Um, like <laughs> it's, <laughs> the idea behind that line is just like that you can't take what you want out of a um, sort of abundance of options, right? Like you, mm-hmm. like you know, you're you're ready to grab whatever you want, but it's like, oh, but there's so many. Like the the paralyzation uh, that comes with the opulence of choice, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the paralysis, rather, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, that comes with the opulence of choice. That comes with the a um, what's the fucking word I'm looking for? A who cares? Um, <laughs> but but yeah, that's it's it's like a funny way to say it because obviously I'm talking about fucking sheep. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it it could be it's just pandering to any sort of impulse or any desire that you have. It's all gross and disgusting until it works out you know like yeah. um like if you know you tell you know i say this all the time like um my my neighbor is a fireman and i met him on our bridge we stood like eight feet apart and had a beer the other night and he's like <laughs> these boys all they do is play Fortnite. doesn't that bother you and i'm like man when we were little kids, there was people taking their parents' record players, taking their parents' records, and moving the records back and forth on the record player, destroying the record player and the record <laughs> to make a sound like... Vicka, 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 vicka. And there's no way that this seems stupider to us than that did to them. You yeah. know? And fucking uh those people that did that are billionaires now i don't know how playing this video game could turn these people into billionaires i don't know but i'm just saying i'm not smart enough to think that i'm stupid enough that i know the answer right you know like and um that's sort of the thing it's like everything looks like fucking a sheep until you become a billionaire Mm -hmm. you know man uh, so, like it all looks fucking dumb as shit until it works out but if you're paralyzed by options uh you get nowhere you get nothing yes so that's sort of i mean and it's it's prison metaphor obviously it's the prison a different sort of prison mm-hmm. can't wait to be 
done with this podcast so that I can sit in front of my TV and just scroll through Netflix and try to figure out what I need for myself. What's <laughs> what's the exact right thing? It might be on Hulu. <laughs> if anyone Probably. if anyone's got a login for that. Uh <laughs> Uh, the, the, the third verse, like the, uh, the morning in a drunken haze, um, it feels like it's not, at least it's not like as, you know, it's not occurring on the same, uh, day as everything before it, but it feels like somewhat disconnected from, from everything else. Am I off on that? Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, you know, the first, the first verse is metaphorical. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and then this is like more literal. It's the more, um, th- this is, this is like more of a coping mechanism. This is absolutely. I wrote this, and it was like I wrote it to Dan. You uh-huh. know, like uh, it was it was an exercise. Like there was no morning where I woke up still drunk and called Dan and don't remember it, and then went with him to get breakfast and then went to the zoo. That. Probably has happened, but that's not what I was writing about. <laughs> um, I, I would, I would, I would wager that's probably happened. I bet we've done all those things, but um, I just remember, like, sort of the, the exercise there was to like sort of write a letter to Dan about, uh, you know, being a uh, being like sort of trapped in my own like behavioral dysfunction or whatever. Yeah, you're. Uh... Sure are turning 30. <laughs> I mean, how right. much how much fun was it to just like do this thing with with Dan after uh awesome. yeah, after you know, you go through such cool and unique trajectories from 1993 until where you are now just doing this thing, having fun. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, you know, one of the things that I um, really don't take for granted is that, like, my close friends are all friends I've had forever and ever, you know? Like, Chris, Neil, Nick, Dan. I mean, Dave I've only known for, like, 15 years. He's, like, the new guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but like, like, these are all, like, you know, people that I've like grown up with and the fact that I can still call them all friends, it says a lot about all of them in terms of being able to put up with me. But it's also like, Oh, I must not be the worst fucking friend in the world. It's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And, um, no, I mean, I, these are all like extraordinarily talented, cool people. And I, yeah, it's, it's fun to be able to work with any of them in any capacity still it's really neat um very thankful yeah for the fucking group of assholes that i got fucking thrown into <laughs> um i like at the uh in the end part how it's really I, I i think that that's dan dan you and dan actually when you go down into that like low down register you do kind of sound the same but is it dan singing for look up the sky. Yeah, that's yeah. Dan. Yeah, yeah, that's Dan singing. Um, uh, the frogs rain down 
that's biblical. It's also um, I only know that because I was confused by the end of Magnolia. Oh God, it's raining frogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that kid at the beginning says that's what's going to happen. Yeah. The um, that's uh, I want to say there's more like biblical plague references on this album, um, but. Yeah, I did catch a few like here and there. I, I I could be wrong. This one this one's definitely a biblical plague reference. They're they're Well, the blood flooding the riverbed also. I mean the rivers of blood, that's another plague. Um mm-hmm. you know, but um You fuck with uh you ever read Carl Young? Not really, no. Uh, I'm gonna send you a video at the end of this. Any fans of the mm-hmm. shining out there? You want to search Stanley Kubrick, Carl Jung, J-U-N-G. You'll have a fucking fun time. But the River of Blood, yes. Biblical kind of comes in a, in a lot the of different places. usually gets off on the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> the Shinning. Do you want to get sued? Yeah. Well, hell yeah. Um, blood's been shed, and we're out. 10 tracks, Unicornography, just six months after Oh Calcutta, this is released. Um, not a bad 2006 for you, my friend. Yeah, it turned out pretty good. I'm I'm happy with this record. I'm happy with the Oh Calcutta record, too. Yeah, it was it was nice. It uh, would mark my first time of taking like an extended break, which would go on to define the rest of my career after that. <laughs> Well, it had to right. have been like, um, you know, Oh Calcutta certainly like uh, wet a lot of people's appetites for another release from you six months down the line. Would you say that Unicornography like had a had a pretty good reception after that? Yeah, I think that the timing was exceptional for this record. I mean, obviously with Danny on it, there's going to be like a star power that like I couldn't bring to the table or anything like that in order to get people to check out a new thing. But, um, you know, with the release of Oh Calcutta and people being excited about it and a lot of people being turned on to the stuff that, you know, the Lawrence arms do for the first time to, I think to have another album that came out with that, like sort of my, for better or for worse, very distinctive sounding voice on a new record like so quick after. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it very much benefited this record and, you know, the whole like mythology of the Falcon in general. I mean, it's cool. Yeah. I think that um, this is, it, it's a good timing too for, I think the word was getting around that you were kind of a, a smart dude and a and a funny one too, and I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of your brain uh, is really really in here, and I think that that's um, that's part of the reason people connect with you the way that they do. Hmm. Well, fuck, that's nice. I hope I hope so. I mean, it's better than connecting with me because I think I'm an asshole. Or <laughs> Man, I hate that Brendan guy. I can't wait to buy this new record. <laughs> Damn. Well, 
this was so much fun as always, and I am very much looking forward to next week. Brandon, what do you think we should talk about? You know, I think we uh, we've done such a good job here with the Falcon. We did such a great job with the Broadways, um, and we got to keep these fucking Lawrence Arms releases uh, in our pocket for a second. So let's do uh, the "I'd Rather Die Than Live Forever" Wandering Birds record. Oh, yes, I can't. I've always wanted to know which CTA bus that picture was taken on. Well, I'll tell you next week, man. Oh, baby. Looking forward to it. Uh, reminder all of you out there. Well, before I remind you, I want to say thank you. Thank you for joining us once again on Road to the Skeleton Coast. Rate, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Tell your friends. We're having a fun time doing this. We're getting uh, we're getting our emotions out. That's right. They're they're all contained indoors, um, and this is a super fun thing that we get to do every week. Thank you all for for joining us for this party. Um, we'll be back next week with another edition. We'll see you then. Thanks, brother. All right, see you guys.